Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of Is It Shane Ritchie? The Adventures of a Wrestling Journeyman. My name is Carl Stewart, and I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen today, whoever and wherever you are. Thank you to everyone who has recently taken the time to interact with us, and to everyone who has shared our posts on social media. Please do keep interacting with us, as it not only lets us know that you're listening, but it really does help us to improve and grow. We are now available on a number of different podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can find links to all of the various places you can now find us through our page at www.conroypod.vze.com That's www.conroypod.vze.com You can also download the episodes from there, and the page does contain something of a rogues gallery of various people who've either appeared on the show or who we've mentioned in various anecdotes and stories. Please do check that page out and let us know what you think via our social media pages, which you can also find linked from there. If you enjoy this show, please do continue to like, share, retweet and mention us to others, and we will continue to add more 100% original content on each and every episode. Episode 18 sees the first part of our absolute epic of an interview with former international referee Tony Nadette. As well as refereeing for many promotions in Scotland and England, including being one of the regular referees for Wild Promotions, my own company, Tony also toured Italy in 2006, along with a number of high-profile wrestlers from around the world, such as Rikishi, Ultimo Dragon, Vampiro and others, and his domestic refereeing duties also brought him into contact with many other worldwide stars such as Raven, Doug Williams and Japanese legend Mitsuharu Misawa. Tony has some tremendous stories to tell from his time in professional wrestling, which we'll cover in depth as we go through his interview. In this first part though, we talk about his wrestling fandom throughout the years which continues in some form to this day. We also have all of our regular features, short stories, quote of the week, and song of the week. So sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 18 of Is It Shane Ritchie? It's now time for the first of our regular features. Short stories. Yes, it's time once again for short stories. For anyone listening for the first time, this section of the show focuses on my experiences in wrestling with the wonderfully eccentric MC of many years' experience, Mr. John Short. Again, if you are new to the show, 
for a more comprehensive background on who John is, please do go back and listen to episode one, as I gave a little bit more of an overview of John in that first episode. Over the years, I've made hundreds and hundreds of trips in the car with John, across the length and breadth of Britain, and have worked on hundreds and hundreds of shows with him. He's someone I actually think the world of, even though you might not necessarily think so from listening to these stories. Some of my favourite times in wrestling have involved John in some way. So, as I've mentioned on a number of occasions before, I tell these stories not to knock the guy. Well, maybe a little bit. But more to celebrate and share his wonderful eccentricities with others. I should point out that he is a friend of both myself and my family, and has been for a long time. He also has absolutely no problem with me telling these stories. Just to make that clear. This week's short story takes place in November 2007, on a run of shows in Scotland for Wild Promotions. This particular set of shows took place on a Sunday, Monday and Tuesday, with the first stop being the Albert Halls in Stirling, followed by the Blythe Hall in Newport-on-Tay, and finally Reed Hall in Forfa. Heading north with John in the car on this occasion were the Rock and Roll Express, Blondie Barrett and James Baker, also known as Jason Fury. It seems appropriate to be talking about this run of shows on this particular episode, as it was actually the last time my guest on this episode, Tony Nadette, refereed for Wild, as he left wrestling shortly afterwards to concentrate on his normal career. With the shows being on the days they were, Tony was only able to make it for the first show in Stirling, so also heading north was Justin Richards, who would serve as referee for the other two shows in Newport and Forfa. This run of shows was notable for a number of things, amongst them a somewhat memorable, for all the wrong reasons, escapade involving the aforementioned James Baker. But more about that a little bit later. I'm pleased to say that James will be appearing as a guest on this show in the near future to give his side of the story and for us to cover the rest of his very interesting wrestling career too. But back to the shows in November 2007, and specifically John's various contributions. The show in Sterling was a pretty solid one, all in all, with the usual enthusiastic crowd we always had there. Highlights included a solid opening match between Jason Fury and Wolfgang, a battle of the masked men between Vinnie Karma and Falcon, an open challenge by Invincible, which saw Nathan Reynolds being dragged to the ring and thrown in by his disgruntled opponents from earlier in the evening, Mike Musso and Jamie Impact, and a good main event title match between Wild Promotions Catchweight Champion, or Kedgeweight, as John kept announcing it for some reason, Liam Thompson, and challenger the Rock and Roll Express Blondie Barrett. The first half of the show ended with me staging a sit-in protest after losing my match, instructing John over the microphone to go and get me a cold drink, go and get me a telly, I'm going to sit here, relax, 
and watch Diagnosis murder until this absolute travesty of justice is overturned. The Diagnosis murder reference was for Tony's benefit, I should add, being a fan of all manner of crime and detective shows. I would quite often make references to Columbo, The Bill, and various other programmes just to try and make Tony laugh, which was usually successful. Anyway, needless to say, I didn't get my cold drink, or my telly, and after being threatened with being suspended from my own promotion, if I didn't leave the ring by a count of ten, I finally made my exit. John then went to work doing the birthday announcements, and, of course, did his usual stellar job. We have another one now? I think the name is Paul Marsterson, although I'm not sure of that. No idea when his birthday is, but he's ten years old, so happy birthday. Cheers, John. I'm sure he was absolutely thrilled to receive such a wonderful birthday greeting. After the show, the plan was to all head up to rural Perthshire to spend a bit of time winding down and having a drink or two at the house of the previously mentioned Invincible. Or Dave. We didn't have to call him Invincible all the time. And his wife Sharon who lived on a farm near a little village called Meagle. Incidentally, on a journey with John another time, we're going along, and he just randomly mentions, Oh, I forgot to tell you, I found a place even smaller than Meagle. Alright, where was that? Denmark. Okay, I never did get to the bottom of that one. Almost as baffling as the time we were randomly chatting, and the subject, somehow, of breastfeeding and bottle feeding came up, and John proceeded to chip into the conversation with... I don't know if I was breastfed as a baby or not, to be honest. I don't know if they really did it back then. Pretty sure they did, John. But anyway. On our way up to Dave and Sharon's house, after the Sterling show, which was a regular congregating point for the Wild crew, we were going along in John's car, and all of a sudden, my wife Tracy said she could smell burning. I also then started to smell it, and it started to become quite strong. John couldn't smell a thing though, and carried on driving. Over the next few minutes, the smell became stronger and stronger, to the point where we finally convinced John to pull over and check where it was coming from. Somewhat aggrieved, because he still couldn't smell anything, John pulled over at the side of the dual carriageway and got out, saying he would go round and check everything, to see if it was anything to do with the car. I'd opened the window to see if it was something outside of the car, but it didn't seem to be, as the air seemed clear. John closed the door behind him, and then proceeded to spend over ten minutes doing circuits round the car, muttering to himself, kicking each tyre a number of times, opening and closing the boot about five times, kicking the exhaust, and then repeating the process several more times, all the time still mumbling away to himself. Fucking... Again, and again, and again. If this had been anybody else, there would have been no humour whatsoever to be found in the situation. But because it was John, the whole thing just took on an entirely different context and the sight of him going round and aggressively kicking the tyres and exhaust pipe, whilst muttering away to himself, 
just became hilarious, to the point where we were in absolute stitches sitting in the car by the end. We really did have to try our hardest to keep straight faces when John finally got back in the car, reporting after his extensive check that he couldn't find anything wrong. When he got back in the car, he was annoyed, as I think he'd suspected we were on the wind-up. But for once, we genuinely weren't, and we actually really could smell burning in the car. We carried on along the road, and the smell of burning gradually disappeared, and I've no idea to this day what had actually caused it. Of course, despite the first occurrence of this being completely genuine, after John's performance at the side of the road, a few months later we happened to be travelling on the same stretch of road again, which jogged my memory, and knowing that he wouldn't remember this ever happening, we just had to recreate the magic for the other people in the car, who hadn't been there the previous time. One of the people in the car with us the next time was Blondie, who, when I suddenly said, Can you smell burning? knew to play along, and agreed, Oh yeah, I, I can smell burning, yeah. John, again, took a bit of convincing, but he eventually pulled over, and got out to start his advanced troubleshooting routine again. And as he closed the door, I turned round to Bob and said, Hey, I'll watch what he does. It's hilarious. And we were then all treated to John doing the exact same thing as the previous time, but possibly even more aggressively this time, which again left everyone in the car in stitches. Going back to the night after the Sterling show, though, the other couple of jobs were a bit more local, with hardly any travel involved. So we were able to have a fun, relaxing night and enjoy a beer or two, without needing to be up too early the following day. Or at least that was true in most cases. I was working as a temp at Nine Wells Hospital in Dundee at the time, and with the shows being on a Sunday, Monday and Tuesday, that meant that I was at work during the day for two of them, and then rushing along to the horse to set up for the shows straight afterwards. This was one of many times during my run as a promoter that I ended up seriously questioning my own logic. It seemed like a good idea in the build-up, as the jobs on the days I had to work were local ones. But in practice, it just pretty much led to chaos, and a massive rush to get everything ready in time. After a bit of a mad dash, we got set up ready for Monday's show in Newport, which was just across the Tay Bridge from Dundee into Fife. John made his opening announcements, and then remembered that the hall staff had asked him to make an announcement as well. We would like to remind you on behalf of the hall that this is a no-smoking venue, so if you do want to have a cigarette, please pop out into the foyer. Or outside the building. Either way, John. The format for this show involved four singles matches, with the winners meeting in a tag match at the end of the night. The first match was between Blondie and Nathan, and John quickly made his first wrestling-related gaffe of the evening, as he was in the process of announcing Bob. He is one of the legends of British wrestling, and he is still one of the legends of British wrestling. Cool, that hasn't changed in the two seconds since you last announced it then, John. The next match saw Jason Fury and Liam Thompson have a nice little babyface wrestling match. For a few years prior to this, Baker and me had had a running joke 
saying, wouldn't it be funny to send someone out to the Blue Oyster Bar music from Police Academy? So, naturally, when I finally did acquire the music, it seemed only right that he be the lucky recipient. It took a minute for him to click as to what the music was, but he soon realised, and maybe wished he hadn't mentioned it to me quite so many times. But anyway. Next up were Dave, Invincible, and Mike Musso, in a match which enthralled John so much, he spent virtually the entire time it was on for, looking like he was doing a crossword at his table, paying no attention whatsoever as to what was going on in the ring. Either that, or he was maybe completing a what-kind-of-fudge-are-you questionnaire from Fudge Lovers Monthly or something. Whether it was this, or something else, I don't know. But John seemed a little disorientated when it came to my match with Ewan McEwen, which was next. I came out to the ring and did my usual announce me at 10 stone 3 pounds promo. John then took the microphone and said, Ladies and gentlemen, give a welcome if you will, please, for the water-retaining Loch Ness, the water-retaining governor. It's the governor, ten stone three pounds. It's the slim trim governor, uh, the governor, Carl Conroy. Cheers, John. Thanks for that. The rest of the show came and went, and we finished off with a good solid tag match involving Nathan, Liam, myself, and Bob, who ended up replacing the injured Dave. After packing the ring away into the van, we then retired back to Dave and Sharon's place in Meagle again for another few beers ahead of the final show of the run the following day in Forfa. Before the show itself, we needed to stop off at the local Tesco in Forfa, which was directly opposite the Reed Hall, to purchase the refreshments for the night. We always used to sell cans of the Tesco's own Coke and Diet Coke, along with crisps, Mars bars and various other things. And this, rather than the wrestling merchandise, was probably the biggest seller at the Forfa shows. So, although Tesco was only just across the road from the hall, we always bought so much of the stuff that we couldn't actually carry it across. Previously, we'd used to borrow one of the trolleys and take the stuff across the road to the hall in that, before returning the trolley later on. However, this was around the time that Tesco introduced a system where... If you tried to take the trolleys beyond a certain point, the wheels would lock. So, rather than taking the chance of this happening in the middle of the road, we instead asked John to drive us back across to the hall with the refreshments in the car. After coming out of the shop and seeing that John had taken up two entire parking spaces in quite a beautifully symmetrical pattern, it has to be said, we loaded everything into the boot and got in. And then, without looking, John just started reversing out, blissfully unaware of the car about to hit us if we went any further. The understandably strained subsequent conversation went something like this. John, there's a car coming! Oh, I was hoping you'd scream if there was anything coming. Then, after we'd narrowly averted yet another certain death moment in John's car, not for the first time that weekend... Collecting ourselves, I said to him, John, what do you do when we're not in the car with you? To which he casually responded, Oh, I look then. 
unbelievable. Actually, I take that back. If it was anybody else, it would have been unbelievable. But with John Short, it's pretty much a regular occurrence. Although drinks were often a good thing at the shows in Forfa, because we sold an absolute shed load of them, on this particular show, drinks also turned into a very bad part of the day. James and Blondie had gone off prior to the show to have a wander around the town, and had ended up in one of the local pubs. With Bob, I knew I had nothing to worry about, because as well as being a very good professional, who wouldn't have come back in no state to wrestle, he was also a very stout drinker, and could very easily make a pint last a good while. James, on the other hand, and I really don't want to slag the guy off here, because I've always got on very well with him, but he did, unfortunately, have a bit of a history with drink. Having said that, though, he had been absolutely fine the previous few days, and there hadn't been any problems up to that time. Unfortunately, that was all about to change massively, though. When he arrived back at the hall, he was clearly a bit worse for wear. To be honest, I really wasn't sure about putting him on the show, but maybe against my better judgement, I did and he was on in the opening match of the show against Blondie. Unfortunately, although Bob tried his best, the match did suffer, with several things going awry. The one highlight, if I can call it that, of the whole situation though, was James coming out to the ring wearing Justin's pork pie from Desmond's hat, which as soon as Justin spotted, he clearly wasn't happy about. James came walking round the ringside, clapping his hands and geeing the crowd up, with this hat on, which he then took off and tried to throw into the ring like a frisbee. Unfortunately though, it didn't quite make it, instead landing in a heap on the floor, where it stayed for about a minute, until James finally retrieved it, all the time with Justin visibly getting angrier and angrier. James then picked it up and tried again, this time tossing it at Bob who picked it up, put it down on the canvas, and motioned like he was going to stamp on it. Although, thankfully, he didn't. Much to the relief of Justin, it has to be said, who was very happy to finally pick up the hat and deposit it safely on John's table at ringside. As the show went on, John did his usual cracking job with the birthday announcements, trying and failing to locate one lucky recipient, adding... If he is here, good luck and many happy returns. If he's not here, well, many happy returns anyway. Cheers, John. After that, John went on to do his usual spiel, asking the crowd whether they were enjoying themselves, etc. And following up with the usual, Do you want to see wrestling back here? John then started going into detail about when the next show would be. We will be back here early in the new year. So, although we've got a good crowd in tonight, we can always squeeze in a few more, so please do tell your friends. At which point, someone in the audience can be heard shouting, SHUT THE FUCK UP! Which summed up the Forfa crowd quite nicely, to be honest, as they were known to become a little bit feisty on a few occasions when we were there. I've mentioned a few of the characters from the Forfa crowd before on the podcast, but... As well as those I've already talked about, there was one guy 
a heavy-set disabled fan who was there every single time and who often joined in with me and Justin saluting as God Save the Queen played when we were antagonising the punters as the hated Team England. On this particular night though, rather than saluting, during Mike Musso's entrance to Hot Stuff by Donna Summer, the overly excitable fan could be seen firstly doing Rick Rude-esque hip swivels to the music, then having doggy-style sex with an invisible woman, and then turning his attention to Mike, who he started moving towards and started again air-humping in the direction of. As usual, we all ended up back at Dave and Sharon's in Meagle, where, also as usual, we ended up having a few drinks. With my wife Tracy and me both having work on the Wednesday morning, we decided to head off reasonably early. After a few drinks, anyway. And after saying goodbye and thank you to the crew who had travelled up from England for the jobs, we headed off back to West Jordanston, the farm a couple of miles along the road, where we were living at the time. John joined us as well, as he also wanted to get a decent night's sleep, ahead of the long drive the following day. I'm guessing that the previous few days had taken their toll, and I subsequently overslept and missed my bus into Dundee. With us living in such a rural location, the buses only ran very infrequently, so there was absolutely no way I'd be able to get into Dundee in time to start work. Luckily, John hadn't left to head back down south yet, and I managed to persuade him to give me a lift into Dundee, before he would then go back along to Dave and Sharon's place to pick up the others for the trip back down to England. On the way to Dundee, I got a phone call, and I'm struggling now to remember who it was from. I've got a feeling it was either Justin or Sharon, but whoever it was, they told me that, in the middle of the night, James had gone absolutely berserk, and had run out of the house in the pitch black and just taken off running. Not for the first time over the course of those few days, the words, oh for fuck's sake, then left my mouth, and I was then clued in on what had happened. Apparently, James had accidentally gone into one of the rooms in the house he wasn't meant to go in. If I remember rightly, he might have been looking for the bathroom or something like that, but went the wrong way. Dave hadn't been happy about this, but everything had then apparently been settled down. Then, later on, as they carried on drinking, James had become increasingly paranoid that Dave was going to beat him up, and that the others were all in on it and were going to trap him so this could happen. He had then panicked and run out of the house, taking off across a field, and that was the last anybody had seen of him. Apparently they'd then gone out looking, but hadn't been able to find him anywhere. So that was where we were at that point in the proceedings. Not having a clue where to even begin with all of this, we just sort of had to hope that he would turn up somewhere okay, so we could find out what the fuck had happened to him. I told John what had happened, and then phoned my wife, Tracy, with the news. And we were all just at a complete loss as to what to do. We thought about phoning the police, or going back out to look for him again. But we really didn't have a clue what to do, or even where to start with all this, frankly. After churning things over in my mind, for better or worse, we carried on to Dundee. As I figured losing my job 
probably wouldn't exactly help the situation. Not too long after that, I then got a phone call from Tracy, who told me that James had now turned up at our house, or rather had been taken there after stumbling into the spa shop in Meagle, soaked through and absolutely freezing cold, with one shoe and various other bits of clothing missing. He'd apparently gone into the shop after having been Christ only knows where all night, and asked if anybody in the shop knew us. Luckily, one of the benefits of living in a small place like that is that everybody knows everybody, and Tracy had actually even worked at that shop previously. So when he stumbled in and asked if anybody knew us, they did of course, and one of the women who worked there took pity on him and wrapped him up in a blanket she'd found from somewhere before driving him up to our place in her car. From what we could gather, as the story unfolded, he'd taken off through the field from Dave and Sharon's in the pitch black, ended up in a ditch, which is where he'd lost his shoe, then somehow ended up in a river, which explained why he was soaked through when he turned up. Then, presumably as dawn broke, he was able to somehow find his way to Meagle, where he ended up at the spa shop. I told John all of this, and he agreed to head back along to our place first to pick James up, before going back along to Dave's to get Bob. James was lucky in the end that I'd slept in that day, as if I'd managed to get my bus as intended, John and Bob would have already been on their way back down south by the time he resurfaced back in Meagle. I can't imagine that the trip back down was an especially jolly one, to be honest, given everything that had happened. To cap everything off, during the hectic run of shows, I'd missed a couple of phone calls from my parents in Birmingham, and when I finally got the chance to ring them back, I found out that my mum had fallen down the stairs and broken her foot. Plus, we discovered that, at some point, our rent money had gone missing. So, with the landlord due over to collect the couple of months' worth of rent we had saved up, there went most of the takings left over from the shows. It had been an interesting and eventful few days, shall we say, and I was starting to think Tony had had the right idea when he got out of Dodge after the Sterling show. I still carried on doing it after this, though, because despite all the utter madness that came along with wrestling, I was still well and truly hooked and Hotel California wasn't about to let me out just yet. My guest this week is someone I've known now for nearly 20 years. Relatively speaking, he only had a fairly short career in professional wrestling, but at the same time, he's someone who crammed a lot of experiences into that four to five year period he was involved for. My guest this week is Glasgow, Scotland's finest former international referee and the owner of the largest collection of Colombo merchandise in the Western world. My guest this week, professionally known as Tony Nadette, but we'll get on to that shortly, is my friend, Tony Cochran. A huge welcome to Is It Shane Ritchie, and I've got to get one of these in right at the start. One of it. Thanks so much for the warm welcome, Carl, and extra points for remembering about Columbo. <laughs> <laughs> I can't forget Columbo. Uh, who can? 
on every Sunday on Channel 4. <laughs> yeah, let's get the plugs in early. <laughs> How are you doing? You okay? I'm doing great, thanks, Carl. I've said before on here that at the time you sometimes don't really appreciate just how fun things can be. You're so sort of totally immersed in living those experiences. It's only really when you're a bit older and you start looking back and introspecting on things that you realise not just how much fun certain things were, but also how utterly fucking mental some of the things you experienced were. But I mean, at the time, it was just par for the course and you just motored on through and you try and tell people about this strange sort of subdivision of life and they either look at you like you're mental or they just don't comprehend at all. But I'm sure we'll get into a lot of those strange bordering on mental situations in a little while. Absolutely. The first thing I want to get into with you is when did wrestling sort of first appear on your radar? Were you a fan from an early age? And if so, what was it you were watching in those early days? Yeah, well, I suppose I was relatively young at the time, so I was about seven or eight years old. And what I'm about to describe sounds like a fairy tale, but this is the truth. <laughs> I was in school one day. I went to school in Glasgow, where I, broadly speaking, still live. And it was pretty much a school where everyone played football if you were a boy. And that was all that anyone cared about. Or fighting. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> or both. It was, or both. <laughs> and I remember one break. It was a lunchtime, I'm sure. And... All of a sudden, there was loads of activity of people running to the other side of the playground. And I just assumed it was a fight. So obviously, being a Glasgow native, I wanted to catch a bit of the action. And once I got there, there was genuinely a huddle of people. And it still wasn't clear what was going on. It even took a few seconds to realise there wasn't actually a fight going on. But there was certainly a lot of interest. And what it was, is essentially one of the boys in the year above me, I think, had either a magazine or a program with Hulk Hogan on the cover. And the reason I'm unsure about this now, and I'm sure I could try and do a bit of Google to research this and verify, but it was the spring 1991, and at that point, WWF, I know now, had just done a tour. And I just can't recall if it was the souvenir program for the tour or WWF magazine. But in any case, here's this magazine brochure, with Hulk Hogan, with his permatan and his 24-inch pythons and all that. And like everyone else, I was just totally enamored. I was like, what is this? So school bell went, we all went back to classes and stuff. But I just had it in my head all day, and all I remember capturing was WWF. So I said to my mum when I got in about it, and she said, oh, I've seen that at work. Because my mum worked in a retail outlet at that point, and they sold the VHS tapes. Uh-huh. And I just kept going on about this for a couple of hours, and I can't remember if it was that night or the next night, but it was one of the two. I just kept going on about it to the point where she got me a video. And I'll put this in quotation marks. I would call it the best of the Ultimate Warrior. And <laughs> <laughs> we'll call yes. it a compilation of Ultimate Warrior matches. That's probably a better way of putting it. Yeah, I was going to say, start uh, as you mean to go on with your fandom. I mean, come on. I know, Exactly. But it was amazing. I mean, genuinely, I was eyes wide open. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. I mean, I think the first match in the tape was Ultimate Warrior versus Andre the Giant. At that point in time, Andre was pretty much unable to move very much, yeah. wasn't he? We're talking about late 80s here. The tape and stuff like that. 
It had haku. It had a brother love section. <laughs> it had, you know, just stuff like that. And it wasn't great by any stretch as an older fan or a more experienced fan. But as a kid, my eyes were just wide open. And to sort of paraphrase something that one of your previous guests said, similar to Mike Musso, it was almost like, wow, these are real-life superheroes that yeah. I'm watching just now. They've got all the muscles, they're all got colourful clothing on, they're doing these crazy moves. I was totally enamoured, and from that point on, and strictly speaking, I suppose, even until now, albeit there's peaks and troughs, I've been a wrestling fan. And mm-hmm. at first, it was extreme. I mean, my mum was over the moon. Because I was one of these kids that when it got to my birthday or Christmas, oh, is there anything you want? I don't know. I'm fine. I'm not bothered. (laughs) And my mum had always got me this sort of big thing for that time. So, for example, I had all the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I had all the Batman Sorry, sorry, sorry. I've got to stop you there. We called them Hero Turtles. Oh, sorry, I should clarify then. The Hero Turtles for the UK and perhaps some other European markets. <laughs> we were more sophisticated than those pesky Yanks. Absolutely. <laughs> those damn Yanks. <laughs> but yeah, like, you know, I'd got all these toys and, you know, I'd open up the present. I'd go, oh, that's great, amazing, I've got this, just like everyone else. Well, not everyone, but, you know, that is the thing I know is in just now. But I remember, quite literally, for example, I think I took a Batman helicopter out of its box and looked at it and did the Alan Partridge shrug of the shoulders type (laughs) thing, you know? And the funny thing is, at the time, my cousins and my friends at school, they'd have loved this stuff. It's just I wasn't engaged in certain things in the same way as others. The same with football, you know. Notionally, I suppose I'm a fan of one of the Glasgow teams. But just because of the school I went to, <laughs> and then um, that's a kind of a cultural reference, because if you're in Glasgow and someone says, what school did you go to? If you say Saint something and they didn't go to Saint something, you might be in trouble. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, you know, my mum tried so hard to keep me happy with all the stuff she thought other kids liked, and they did. I just wasn't that interested. And then I saw the wrestling stuff, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Now, strictly speaking, to answer your question, with the benefit of hindsight, I probably just about recall the tail end of World of Sport on TV, but I just couldn't hand in heart tell you I remember a certain person, other than perhaps giant haystacks, you know, what a mountain of a man he was. But I think hand in heart, I'd have to say my real first exposure and interest was the WWF stuff. And it's probably in line with a lot of my contemporaries, I would say. Albeit a lot of people then went on to research stuff like Johnny Saint, etc. I just kind of missed out on the world of sport British stuff. And I was into the WWF stuff in a big way. I was obsessed. I would sit in art class at school drawing WWF wrestlers or the WWF wrestling ring. I would get all the figures. That was my go-to present for my birthday and so forth. And I don't know if you remember, Carl, back then, the WWF Hasbro wrestling ring was just hard plastic. Um, yeah. So I'm imagining now, you know, you're a parent, Carl. Imagine hearing that noise day in, day out from, you know, half three <laughs> in the afternoon until yeah, about I, half eight at night or whatever it was. Yeah, uh, I, I don't have to imagine. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It still lives on. These types of toys that are a headache for parents. But, you know, my parents were probably just happy that I was into something. And to that end, I suppose, quite quickly, really, within a year, certainly, the WWF were back in Glasgow as part of a tour. And my mum asked me, would you like to go? And like a shot, I said yes. 
in the past with other questions. Do you want to go to see this film in the cinema? It's like, oh, I'm not bothered. But with the wrestling, <laughs> it was like, definitely, I'd love to go. And my dad was sent down to what was called Candle Riggs Market in Glasgow. It would have been gone by the time you were around Glasgow, Carl. It's essentially the merchant city of Glasgow. And it's probably bars and restaurants and stuff now. But back then, there'd be like traders selling stuff. And within that, there was a box office. And that's where you went to buy your tickets for shows. You'd either go there or you'd maybe go to the venue direct such as the old SECC or whatever it might be, or the theatre. And my dad traipsed down, joined the queue of hundreds, <laughs> and he managed to get tickets for not only myself and him, but also one of my friends at the time and his dad. Because quite luckily, I suppose, not only was I able to talk about wrestling at school at that point, 91, 92, but one of my neighbours, their grandson would come and stay with them most weekends for a night or two. And this lad, Scott, was probably a year or two older than me, but he was obsessed with the wrestling as well. So a standard weekend would be Friday evening, I go up there, and then one of the spare rooms, we would just sit watching WWF wrestling tapes and playing with the action figures and stuff. And, you know, before going to that live show as well, not forgetting that, you know, all the VHS tapes, getting them as presents, going to the video shop at the weekend and hiding (laughs) SummerSlam 1988 on VHS for 50 pence for the weekend or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And I can assure you, I think my folks would have been cheaper buying SummerSlam 88 on tape because the amount of times I wanted that rented was unbelievable. So yeah, crammed in a lot in my first year and then finally went to my first live show, which was a WWF show. What do you remember about that first show that you went to, that first experience of live wrestling? It was just out of this world to the point where even now I can still remember so much of that night clearly. I could tell you the date, I could tell you the night of the week it was. (laughs) Um, In fact, well, it was Saturday the 18th of April 1992. And that might start ringing bells for you soon, Carl. I don't know if you'll recall this, but I think we both went to our first WWF show on the same night. Yes, Um, we did. Because, you know, back then, WWF was on fire in the UK. You know, that was the year, of course, that they had SummerSlam at Wembley Stadium. And I understand, Mm -hmm. actually, that people like Justin Richards managed to go to SummerSlam 92. Um, But this tour was before that. And actually, putting two and two together, I dare say the ticket sales for that tour, added with the merchandise sales for that tour was maybe a main driver for moving SummerSlam from Washington, D.C. to Wembley that year because it was absolutely in fire. And in terms of the night itself, I remember going into the arena venue and it's what I call the old SCCC. You know, at the time, that was a big arena in Glasgow. And I remember so clearly we're in the foyer area before you physically walk into the arena element and that's where the merchandise was. Now, back then, it wasn't like now where you had websites for example, where you could Uh go and buy stuff. And I don't even think they had any retail distribution deals at that point with, you know, Asda, for example. If you wanted merchandise, you bought what you could get, which was usually VHS tapes or action figures. And if you got the magazine, I suppose you could get T-shirts and stuff by mail order. But that was a bit more tricky than today, where everything's so convenient, you just click a button and it's with you 24 hours later. And I remember we joined this quotation marks queue It was a huddle of hundreds of people (laughs) trying to get near the front to get the merchandise. And so clearly I remember my dad saying to me, well, have a look and let me know what you want. We'll get you whatever you want. 
and they had the sort of a t-shirts, baseball caps, programs, etc., all sort of stuck to a board that you could look at quite high up. And I said, oh, I wouldn't mind, you know, t-shirt number 18 and cap number 9. And t-shirt number 18 was just a general tour t-shirt. It's probably more commonly known as the Royal Rumble 1991 graphic with, you know, all the wrestlers looking like they're stood in the street in their normal gear. Essentially, that was the image in the front with the tour dates in the back. And the cap was the British Bulldog baseball cap. And we get to the front and my dad's feeling fine, probably knows exactly what his order is. And he says, I'll have number 18 and number 9. And this English bloke looks at him like he's mental and says, what? I'll have number 18 and number 9. That's the prices, mate. What ones do you actually want? <laughs> so uh, even back in uh, 1992, WWF was able to charge quite a lot of money for T-shirts. And as I understand it, they still do manage to pull off charging a lot of money for T-shirts into the arena. And just as you're walking in, the noise was deafening because the SECC arena, they had seating on the floor, like every arena does for the wrestling or boxing. But their tiered seating was movable. So what I mean by that is, probably unlike what I would call the NEC, it's probably got a new name now, they could literally drag the seating in and out so they could have, you know, standing-only events in this hall. That meant that although it was perfectly safe, I'm sure, it wasn't completely solid, like, you know, being in a football stadium. And everyone was just battering their feet off the ground to make noise. Or, you know, the ground below them, if they were in the tiered seating, And it was absolutely deafening with people chanting LOD repeatedly. That's my first memory. And then, like, I can remember clear as day the full card. I can remember the full night of action. And you know what? (laughs) Not everything was a five-star match. But there was stuff on there at a random house show in Glasgow, such as Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels. You know, that was amazing. Their house show match would stand the test of time versus anything that you'd see on TV anytime, really. Stuff like the Macho Man was the champion, and he had all his colourful gear, and he was against the Mountie, who did a very simple promo, but, you know, it set the world alight. You know, the main event was Legion of Doom versus the Nasty Boys, and they did the whole gimmick where Jimmy Hart got on the microphone and said that Glasgow is too loud. If we don't shut up, the Nasty Boys are leaving Glasgow and you're not going to get a main event. And the place exploded, you know, people stamping their feet, screaming, shouting LOD. It was absolutely insane. So amazing memories from my first night at the WWF Live. And it would end up being the first of many nights at the WWF Stroke E Live. Yeah, it sounds like a great show. But I mean, did you have Tatanka versus Kato, for example? Well, unfortunately not. You don't know what you missed out on, frankly. (laughs) Well, that's the funny thing, isn't it, Carl? Because how they worked at that tour is if I had got tickets for the Friday night and you'd get tickets for the Friday night, we'd have seen each other's show. Because what happened was in Glasgow on the Friday night, they had the Tatanka, Kato, Sid Undertaker show, uh-huh. and Birmingham had Brett and Sean that Friday night. Then Saturday night, for whatever reason, they just switched the rosters. They probably didn't need to, really. It was sold out. Back then, I don't really recall there being much of a update on who was going to appear at a certain show. I'd imagine you were really lucky in a sense if you had tickets for both shows. You'd got to see pretty much the whole WWF roster of 1992 at that point. Yeah, that was my experience. You know, it's funny the way that works out. It was the same night as you went to your first show. I mean, as you said, we had Undertaker said, I think Davey Boy Smith was the main event against either IRS or Repo Man. I can tell you, actually. <laughs> That's how geeky <laughs> I am. 
because I remember looking this up years ago just out of curiosity. Uh-huh. So it was IRS the next day at the taped show in Sheffield, a runner two days later, whatever it was. Right. But for the tour, I think it was practically Repo Man most nights. Yeah, it was uh, European Rampage, wasn't it? Yeah, and oddly that, it was, was European cool. Rampage again tour, which seems right. to be some broken English somewhere, doesn't it? But <laughs> in any case, it was all good. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny one, night. I remember going to... Just like you, like lots and lots and lots of those shows, pretty much every single time they came over. But there's a couple of them that I can't find, either I can't find results for, or the results of that show that I've read online just don't tally with my memories of it. It's strange. I'm Um, certainly like that with the more recent shows I've went to. I've almost got a Stockholm Syndrome with WWE now. I'd invested so much time in it from being fairly young. I mean, that's me actually, give or take a week or whatever. I've been a fan now for 30 years. Uh-huh. And it is like a Stockholm Syndrome now. Do I love it the same way as I did back in the day? Hell no. You know, I've able to experience, you know, the British stuff since and all that good stuff. But ultimately, it genuinely is like Stockholm Syndrome where I go to these shows and I might not know many people on it. I might know no one on it. Or I might even have worked with people that are on it at some point it's, in time. Yeah, that's a funny thing. You know, I took my son to a show about two years ago now, basically just to catch up with Drew. And it was funny, you know, the only people I actually knew on the show were the people that I'd personally met and worked with, you know. Because that's how disconnected I am from everything now. You know, I haven't got a clue. But, I mean, I get told, obviously, you know, oh, you know, like, Roman Reigns is doing this and, like, okay, this, this guy's doing that. I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. And you know what? At the point that we were really into the WWF in the early 90s, at that point there was people that were like that with the British wrestling saying, oh, I don't care who Bret Hart or Hulk Hogan is. Uh-huh. I mean, in fact, I went to my second show in 94 and the main event was Bret versus Owen a week hmm. to the day after WrestleMania 10. And it was so funny because afterwards, it was my auntie that went with me that time and we're in a taxi going to meet my dad so he can take me home and the taxi driver's like oh we're on at a show and we're yeah yeah we're at a show well, what did you see and oh we've seen the wwf wrestlers and this taxi driver in glasgow really gruff and stuff oh that's all fake you know that don't you and that bear in mind at this point i'm what 10 years old or whatever and my auntie's <laughs> probably sat there like what is this guy all about but then he says yeah, I mean, it used to be real back in the day when you had Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks. <laughs> yeah, that was the thing. Um, that was the argument I used to get all the time when I talked about being a wrestling fan and being into the American stuff. Oh, yeah, well, uh, back when Big Daddy was around, that was real. Right. Okay. okay. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I actually attended some British shows in the early 90s, and they certainly weren't more real than the WWF ones, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, there was actually the first British show I saw, Carl, was in Blackpool. We went there just for a break, and, you know, we just didn't want to go to Spain and stuff. You know, my sister was still young, didn't think she'd take to the heat or whatever. So we would typically go on little short breaks around Britain a lot in the early 90s. And I remember my first British show was in Blackpool. And at the time, this would have been 1992 or 1993, I'm pretty sure it was 1992, and there was actually options. One option was in one of the theatres, and it's what I would now call one of the all-star shows, and they had a lot of the people that we would know, but they had a WWF gimmicky name. So, for example, it was the model Dave Taylor, 
<laughs> right. And Dave Taylor stood with his normal, you know, trunks and stuff, but he's also found a jacket to make himself look like Rick Martell. <laughs> you know, stuff right. like that. Um, and the Legend of Doom, Johnny South, I think the chap's name was, wasn't That's it? That's right, yeah. And you know what? I ended up seeing him a year or two later, and he really did look the part. I'll give him that for sure. That was one of the shows. But the night that was on didn't really reconcile with our plans. But there was another show, which was all good. And that was at a venue called The Sandcastle in Blackpool. And I don't know if that's still there. But essentially, a way of summarising The Sandcastle is it's a bit like an entertainment complex. Most famous for probably having a massive swimming pool and shoots and stuff. But they did have kind of an entertainment venue in it. Now, the wrestling was only on one night a week. And it just so happened it was on the night that Keith Harris and Orville were having a night off. They were on most nights, and when you went into the venue for the actual wrestling, they still had all their set-up. <laughs> so, <laughs> you had... I don't remember now what the show was called, but the theme must have been along the lines of Keith Harris and Orville visiting a haunted house. Because up against a wall, you had this sort of a grey castle with gargoyles of Orville the Duck. And from one of the doors, or entrance points, that's where the wrestlers would come out. So my first British wrestling show, I noticed Orville the Duck more than anyone else. (laughs) You have no idea how jealous I am listening to this. You're bringing the two best things about my childhood together in one. Uh, I would have loved that. Oh, it was amazing. And in terms of the card itself, And again, I can still remember certain people. So the first match was a chap called Young Hawk, who was probably about 15 years old at this point, versus Johnny Mr. Muscles England. Oh. And in later years, I actually think that Johnny Mr. Muscles England was probably a decent hand in his day. And it was probably some form of trainer versus trainee match. But that kicked it off, and that was all good. But the most memorable points for me were a Mr. T lookalike, Obviously not build as a lookalike, it's British wrestling after all. Um, it was portrayed that <laughs> Mr. T is here in the Sandcastle in Blackpool on this rainy Sunday night. <laughs> and the other big face was a chap called the Preacher Man who came out dressed as a priest with a pair of shades on. And <laughs> it was absolutely remarkable. I mean, again, as a kid though, you don't care. You're seeing wrestling. I don't think the wrestling quality was there. But who cares? You've got a theatre full of happy kids. They missed a trick. I don't think they tried to sell merchandise and stuff. Mm-hmm. Or if they did, it didn't catch the eye. But back then, Carl, you know, wrestling was just so hot, as you'll probably remember. It didn't matter what was in the ring. It was uh-huh. just the fact you were in the room with the ring that mattered. Yeah, and that was a big thing for me as well. You know, I went to loads and loads and loads of different live shows. And it didn't really matter to me what it was. It was wrestling. And, I mean, I've spoken on here before about that experience of going from watching the WWF show, from being miles away from what's going on, to being up close and personal at a British show, and just Mm. absolutely falling in love with that, and wanting to experience that as much as possible. And, you know, like you were saying, it didn't matter what was in the ring. Just as long as there was wrestling going on, I was enthralled by it. Absolutely agree with you. And you know what? It wasn't all bad, though, because, you know, over the next couple of years, let's say two to three years, I actually ended up seeing some British shows that were absolutely amazing. So to give you an example, as I mentioned, we would typically take short breaks at Easter, you know, October break around Britain. 
and you know sometimes would go to holiday camps such as the one in air that i know that spinner has mentioned on his podcast before uh-huh. and i mean i remember one trip it was like a five-day break i'm sure and I'm sure I've seen free wrestling shows. <laughs> um, so, like, I've seen Spinner's crew, and I don't know what the promotion was called or who was really running the show, but their crew was what I would call a standard camp show. And what I mean by that is, it was like the ones that you would go on to run, Carl, where you'd typically have two singles matches, a quick break, and then you'd have a tag team involving the previous wrestlers. And that's how I first seen Spinner. And bloody hell, Spinner was amazing then. I mean, he always is, and he still is, I dare say. If Spinner went in the ring today, I bet he could still go. But uh-huh. back then, it was insane. Actually, to the point where I think people started questioning whether it was real. Maybe the taxi driver had a point. Because I remember <laughs> one time I was at a show that Spinner was on, and it was in a venue, I think it was called Buffalo Joe's or Buffalo Bills, whatever it was. And it was a you know Sunday afternoon, and you know the wrestling's on. But it's not as if people are there just to see the wrestling. People go in at, say, 11 in the morning and are watching the taped horse racing and betting on that. And then there might be an Elvis impersonator. Then there might be, like, you know, some form of singing. And then maybe a bingo game. You know, it's all day in this room stuff was going on. Uh-huh. But at some point, the wrestling's on. And you've got these people who have perched themselves all day just to have a drink. They don't care what's going on in the background. <laughs> and I remember this older man quite near where I was sat. And he was like, Oh, that wrestling, it's bloody fake. What a load of nonsense this is going to be. And see, once the show started and Spinner was in the ring, he was the <laughs> biggest fan in the room. Because I remember so clearly, you know, Spinner posted someone, and I'm not so sure about this, but in my mind, Spinner shouted, Yeah, bastard! And he went running into the corner and clotheslined the guy. And this chap, a couple of seats away from me, he was up in his feet at this point, you know, he's, he's, as I say, he's the biggest wrestling fan in the room all of a sudden, so it just shows you the power of some of the workers back then, like Spinner, to be able to get non-fans bought into it as well, not just the kids who are, let's face it, in my view anyway, it's predominantly a kids' entertainment show, or at least it was. I know that it's moved on now in some ways, but back then, it was the same as taking your kids to see, you know, CBeebies Live, in my view, or the Singing Kettle, or the Circus. That's how I would categorise wrestling. And even as a kid, that's how I viewed it. I didn't think, well, I'm going to still be watching this as a 30-something-year-old. <laughs> um, you know. But yeah, you had class acts like Spinner. All-Star would do these shows as well. And I remember one night, it was Danny Boy Collins versus Doc Dean in a best of you know so many rounds match. Uh-huh. And it was totally enthralling. It was probably the equivalent of, in later years, watching something like Cartango versus Chris Benoit for a WWE fan. Uh It's still wrestling, but these guys were so slick and so smooth. Anyone could watch it and be enthralled by it. Same show, you had people like Robbie Brookside, James Mason. He was probably legitimately about 14, 15, 16. If he was 16, he was doing well. He was very young then. You know, this is back in 1994, I'm talking about. I remember so clearly the date of that one. Dave Taylor, he was on that against Legend of Doom. And again, the place erupted for these guys. And you know what? It is a shame in a sense, because I suppose there was maybe a feeling for Dixon, perhaps. If I send them out as their normal gimmicks, they're not going to get as over as if I send them out, you know, with the Rick Martel gear or the Legend of Doom gear. That show Dunk the Clown, for example. (laughs) Who knows who was under the mask that night? 
But clearly Dixon had diversified his portfolio at that point and thought, well, to try and keep in the game or keep up, I need to go American to some extent. But uh-huh. that didn't take away from the action. These guys were absolutely top draw. They really were. Yeah, and it actually would have been Blondie under the clown gimmick at that time. There you go. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, I was thinking about how you've got different levels of fandom, be it before you get involved in wrestling in some way, like my cup of tea at the buffet, or, you know, after you've got involved, or even while you're involved. Because I'd always say I was a wrestling fan, even now. Last week, about this time, I was buying Inside the Ropes magazine out of the WH Smith round the corner. Have I read it yet? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a lot of the DVDs and books I buy, I just buy it. And it was just like, it was actually quite a nice nostalgic thing to walk into a WH Smith and buy what I would call Power Slam, essentially. Uh-huh. But that's just an indicator of how low my fandom is just now. And you go up and down. And I remember like realizing once just how low I was in the wrestling. It was about four years ago. And went to New York for my mum's 60th. We flew in on the Sunday and we arrived about 11 o'clock in the morning local time. We hadn't booked a show for the evening. We'd been a few months earlier and we booked a show for the evening. And it was only on the way there I thought, God, let's say, you know, there's a delay or an air traffic issue or something or, you know, whatever, there's a problem of some kind and you don't get to see the show on the first night. So the second time round, we didn't book anything for the first night. We arrived in New York. Get out of the airport, go to the hotel, pack the way, meet the family again. And then like we went a wee wander around Times Square. And then we went to the tickets box office, which is essentially, there used to be one in London, actually, just like, you know, a wee box office that sells theatre tickets. And it was then that I realised how little I was into the wrestling, because I think someone must have walked by with a wrestling t-shirt on. And I was like, oh, God, I've just realised that they always have SummerSlam in New York or, well, Brooklyn, to be precise every year pretty much that must be on tonight and you know there wasn't a split second where i thought of leaving that queue for the theater tickets <laughs> to go and get a <laughs> ticket for SummerSlam. and if you compare that to at certain points in my fandom when you were just obsessed with it uh-huh. it's all you're thinking about you love it you're watching it you're you know when you're a kid you're drawing pictures or buying the stickers and it really showed me how far i came from that because here i am in the city where there's a pay-per-view there's a tube station, you know, a minute walk from my hotel, and there's taxis galore. It's so easy for me to access this pay-per-view, assuming I can get a single ticket, because I wouldn't put the family through that. And um, <laughs> But I still didn't do it. I just sticked in the queue and, um, you know, got tickets for Phantom of the Opera, and I had a rare old night, went to an Italian restaurant after the show, and when I came out, it was absolutely peeing down with rain, so it was like being in Glasgow again, but noticed all these wrestling fans jumping out the underground station, and, you know, not again, just not for a second did I think, oh, I wish I'd went to see SummerSlam. Uh-huh. just didn't cross my mind for a second that that would be a good way to spend my night in New York. And that's terrible, isn't it? Seeing you think about how much time you invest in this whole thing and at certain points how high up in your agenda it is. Do mm-hmm. think that when you're on its doorstep and you just don't care, you wouldn't jump in the tube for 20 minutes to go and see this, what I'd call one of the big four pay-per-views of the year. Uh-huh. It's funny how time moves on, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, my wrestling fandom, in terms of, I mean, watching anything modern is non-existent. But now and again, you know, whenever I do get a chance to go and watch something or, you know, I'll always go back and watch something old, first of all. But I'll pretty much always go back and watch something I've already watched that I know I like. 
because I don't get a lot of time for it anymore. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to spend that time watching it, I want to watch something that I know I'll enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that pretty much sums up my fandom. I've no interest whatsoever in anything modern going on now. Yeah, it just doesn't interest me. I mean, the Stockholm Syndrome keeps me buying tickets for the shows. But that said, I'll probably only go back to WWE if I'm extremely bored or if I happen to get front row seats for a relatively cheap price because that's just a different experience being front row for it. I genuinely think you could actually take someone that isn't a wrestling fan at all, sit in front row, and they wouldn't have a bad night. If they didn't particularly enjoy it, at least they'd have an experience from it. But I can't even be bothered now with the hassles of, say, like, you know, people sat in front of me or kids fidgeting or, you know, any of that stuff. I was there the other week at the WWE, and I was in the middle of the front row. And to my right-hand side, I had my pal. And to my left-hand side, I had this guy who was himself. And he was perfect because he didn't say a word the whole night. He didn't want to interact <laughs> or anything. It was absolutely first class. It was a perfect situation. No one in front of me other than the ring. No one beside me apart from the guy I know. And this guy doesn't want to engage with anyone. Absolutely perfect. <laughs> anything else wouldn't have been acceptable to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm very much like that as well. But even at the time that I was involved in the wrestling, I suppose you naturally, your fandom dips because you're so busy actually being involved with it. You yeah. Know? You're actually away every weekend, so you've not got that free time to, like, you know, watch stuff or read stuff or whatever. Uh-huh. And it's funny, like, we've had conversations about wrestling things, right? But most of the time we talk shit, if we're ever talking. <laughs> and it's the same at the time when I was involved. A hand and heart can't remember ever having a single conversation with Drew Galloway, for example, about wrestling. Not a single one. Uh-huh. I couldn't tell you who his favourite wrestler as a kid was. I couldn't tell you if he ever watched WCW. Why? Because we talked about stuff like, you know, the football. We talked uh-huh. about drinking. We talked about uni. We talked about birds. The only wrestling that came into it was like for his actual match. Here's what's yeah. going to happen. Boom. Done. And then we'd go out in the piss and that was that. And people that was around like maybe Andy maybe talk to him a bit more about wrestling stuff uh-huh. I remember him talking about Johnny Saint for example but it was a short conversation because I'd never watched any Johnny Saint stuff so there were some people that did want to engage a bit more about wrestling things I just didn't really bother and I think that's what was nice actually about being involved so you know that you're with people that are like-minded but you're not necessarily talking about the thing you all like, which is a bit odd, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a strange concept, really. I mean, I know that when Justin and me went out to Canada to do the tour out there, one of the guys that was, you know, very full-time in wrestling, a guy called Rick, who worked as Leatherface, mm-hmm. I remember we sat around for a photo shoot, actually, at the uh, Harley-Davidson place in Calgary. This was before we sort of left to go out on the road. And I remember sitting there talking to Rick and he said, particularly, you know, he liked talking to us because we could talk about things that weren't just wrestling. You know, we could talk about other stuff as well. And I think when you're involved so heavily in it, you know, and you're doing it all the time, day to day, you need that sort of little window into the outside world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was at the theatre yesterday watching a play. I'd imagine the cast, when they're sat in their dressing rooms, before, during and after the show, they're not going to be talking about their show or other uh-huh. shows or even actors. They're going to be talking about the weather in Glasgow. Oh, there's a lovely restaurant I went to last night. It's just human nature, I think, for most people. 
But I think actually wrestling's a bit different because I think there was a lot of people, and maybe I actively tried to avoid them too much, unfairly or fairly, that all they did was want to talk about wrestling. And yeah. I didn't really engage with them too much on purpose, probably. <laughs> I mean, probably one that I spoke quite a lot about wrestling, or rather, to be clear, listened a lot, was probably Spinner. You know, there was a few times where he'd drive me back from be it Sterling or Forfer or whatever, and he'd kindly drop me off in Glasgow or even really close to my house. And I loved listening to Spinner's stuff about wrestling because I was a huge mm-hmm. Spinner fan. And it's funny because when you listen to his podcast, like he'll kind of allude to the fact of, I wonder if these people knew how much of a fan I was of them. Uh-huh. And I often wonder when I'm listening to Spinner if he realizes how much of a fan some of us were of him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it kind of goes full circle, doesn't it? And the funny thing is, you know, that probably made for some awkward drives or conversations because I was such a fan of Spinner. You know, I'm talking about the mid-90s or thereabouts. So then when I got to be around him, you know, five to ten years later, I was just so respectful of the guy. But that could probably come across as being quite, ironically, uninterested or cold. But I just wanted to listen to every word he had. Similar like when I got the chance to hang about with Joe Legend for a good Mm -hmm. bit, because I was such a fan of his, I was just absolutely delighted to listen to everything he had to say. Sure, like we probably had like more um, non-wrestling conversations because he's a really interesting guy. If you ever get a chance to talk to Joe, you know, make the time. He's a good guy. He's got some controversial views of the world, but doesn't make him a bad person. It's just he's got a view that's quite strong. And yeah, it was just great to listen to, you know, Spinner's stories. He's even touching some of the stuff on his podcast with you. Some of the things he'd just mentioned in passing to me, you know, when we're doing those road trips. But for most of the time, you know, when I think about the people that I was closest to, didn't talk about wrestling whatsoever. We were taking the piss most of the time. You know, if you think if we were in Grogan's flat, would we be talking about wrestling or would we be watching Brass Eye? We're going to watch Brass Eye. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Myself and my friend Jamie went to WrestleMania 10 years ago. And essentially, it came from an evening of drinking about eight months earlier. Where, you know, we've seen that the tickets had been on sale for a while and we're saying, oh, how good would it be? And then we both realised, well, why don't we actually do this? So we got the best possible package at the time, you know, that the WWE supplied. Because what happens is, just like any other show that you can go to, you can buy a single ticket off Ticketmaster. But at that time, WWE had started doing packages where not only did you get your tickets for the big show, but you also got, you know, your hotel you got tickets for the Hall of Fame, you got tickets for Monday Night Raw, you got to meet a wrestler, you know, they added on all these things. All you had to do was get yourself to the town, essentially, that WrestleMania was in. So we made a bit of a holiday of it. We went to Orlando for a few days, about a week or so, and did all the Orlando attractions. And oddly enough, while we were in Orlando, we were in Universal Studios, which is a massive theme park there, and this guy approaches us and he says, do you fancy seeing the wrestling? And I genuinely thought I was, you know, hearing things at this point. And he says, oh, we've got TNA wrestling taping this evening. If you want to come in, here you go. And he handed us two tickets. And it was like raffle tickets, you know, really small ones that you would get in the cinema in 1934, probably. And sure enough, we went to this TNA show at the tail end of being on the roller coasters and stuff and seeing Hulk Hogan and all that. It was insane. You know, this is a part of the holiday we're trying to avoid the wrestling and we end up watching Hulk Hogan in action. <laughs> but then we go to Atlanta and we get to the hotel and 
I can see a couple of people checking in and they suddenly look really unhappy. And they both look like wrestling fans to me. They had that look about them. And uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you could possibly mean by that. <laughs> well, no sign of a girlfriend in sight, for example. And, uh, right. But what happened was, I know in America, even if you pay for a hotel and you've booked it years in advance, you can still get bumped because they oversell, essentially, to right. make up for anyone no showing. So, sure enough, those guys were getting bumped and so were we. We got bumped to a really swanky hotel and we stayed there for the night and then we went back to the original hotel the next morning because the next morning that's when you're supposed to be getting to meet a WWE superstar. And in our case, it was Randy Orton. And we're in the room and everyone's kind of in a queue. And this guy in front or behind us just starts talking away to us and he was a guy from England. And at first they seemed absolutely fine, you know, just really excited to be in Atlanta for WrestleMania. He's just about to meet a wrestler. You know, it's all good. And we're happy as well. We're in good spirits because we're here for WrestleMania. So it's all good. We're chatting away. He either gets to meet Randy Orton first or we do. But in any case, once we step to the side and start talking about, oh, well, what will we do now? This guy just kind of joins us and starts talking away. And we say, oh, well, hope you have a great day. And we start to walk away and he starts walking with us. It's like, hmm, (laughs) there might be an issue here. And the chat by now is starting to become a bit more weird, I should say. You know, we've been around him for about 45 minutes now, and I'm keen to see the back of him. But at the same time, let's be charitable, you know. Let's just let him hang about with us if that's what he wants to do. So we say, well, we're going to go for a walk, and then we're probably going to go and grab something to eat. If you want to come with us, you're more than welcome. And he said, yeah, okay, so on we go. We go for this walk around downtown Atlanta. But the chat's getting worse and worse and worse, Carl. It's absolutely brutal. You know, it's one of these things like, um, oh, did you know that Ultimate Warrior's real name was Jimmy Warrior and Texas Tornado replaced him and da-da-da. It was going down with sorts of lines. And The um, real Ultimate Warrior got bitten by a shark and like (laughs) they, they replaced him with this other guy when he came back. That's exactly it. That's exactly what we're talking about here. That's the camp we're in just now. <laughs> and there was loads of this type of chat. But now we're at a point where we've been with this guy from going on for two hours now. And he finally says something that makes me literally just stand still. I mean, I'm frozen to the ground, but bent over, howling, laughing. I could no longer contain biting my lip and all that stuff. He basically said, you know what, guys? I'm not going to go for lunch in the Hard Rock Cafe with you because, well, I'm not that hungry. But also, I want to bet with one of the Bella twins. So I'm just going to her hotel now to pump her. (laughs) Now, as I say, I've stood still at this point and then I've bent over laughing. My pal Jamie, he's still walking ahead. And... uh, and he turns around at some point and just sees me literally bent over the way that you probably have many a time with a John Short situation. Oh, God. But yeah, it takes all sorts. And funnily enough, I seen him again that afternoon inside WWE Access, as it's called. That's like a sort of a convention they have. And funnily enough, I seen Drew that day as well. Um, <laughs> Drew was one of the people doing a signing. Because what would happen is they would take two-hour slots of, you know, there was maybe six spots around this convention hall, and there would be shifts of wrestlers and legends coming in to sign autographs or pose for pictures. And you're kind of also 
seeing all this stuff, like the sets and, you know, the gimmicky stuff. And there was even a wrestling ring. They were doing matches at points. It was an amazing experience for a fan, but not so much. as At that point, I was well into my 20s, and so was Jamie. And add to that, between booking for the trip and going, Jamie was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And what happened was, I'm laughing as I say this, but we'll get to a point where you hopefully understand it's acceptable. We didn't know at first what was wrong with him. He'd been holiday to Tenerife or whatever. I think it was Tenerife. And he came back and he just had a dodgy stomach and he had a sore throat. And his mum was saying to him stuff like, oh, it's that dodgy food you've been, all that seafood or whatever you've been eating in Lanzarote or Tenerife. But it got to the point where I said to him, I've been to the doctor before actually because I had sort of a heartburn and really bad. And they gave me some, I think it's called omeprazole or something. It's a medication that helps you with that kind of thing, like reflux uh-huh. and stuff. It doesn't work. So then he goes back to the doctor and he's going back and forth. Then he's in at the hospitals. And ultimately, on the 30th of December, they said to him, it's cancer and it's throat cancer. And you're at stage four. So there's no going back now. We can give you chemo to try and help with the symptoms. But, you know, it's terminal. We're really sorry. At this point in time, his girlfriend, his mum and his uncle burst into tears. Jamie says right away, but I'm going to WrestleMania in three months' time. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and sure enough, he did. But, you know, by that point, he was frail, you know, in a sense. He'd lost a lot of weight and all that, and he was on all this medication. I mean, I saw Drew, and when I say that, I mean quite literally, and I remember shouting, Drew! And I'm pretty sure he did see me, and he waved over. But it was one of these things where he was so popular that he had, like, maybe a couple hundred folk there waiting to meet him. We certainly couldn't wait because of the condition Jamie was in to be in yeah. that crowd of people and that really hot environment. So I didn't get to chat to Drew that day, but I certainly saw him plus my stalker that afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, when I went to that show a couple of years ago and met up with him, you know, it's just the same old Drew, basically. Older and wiser sort of thing, but just the same guy as left in 2007. Drew was um, a great guy, wasn't he? I can't remember ever thinking, oh, what a dick thing to do. I can, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but by the same token, I'm not going to slag the guy off. <laughs> Fair play. <laughs> yeah, he's my ticket out of this shit. Uh, I mean, he's um, yeah, he's, he's, he's my friend. Well, you never know, Carl, that match you had with Drew over certain shows might turn up in the WWE Network someday. Who knows well, if, if it was taped, they have the rights to it. <laughs> I mean, if John Shaw can turn up on the WWE Network, then I certainly can. There's hope for all of us, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> As a fan, I've started going to evening with shows and stuff in recent years. and oh, conventions. Yes. The first one I went to was back about eight years ago, and it was a company called PSI Events ran a tour with Jim Ross, who was oh, right, okay. obviously famous for being a WWE commentator for many years during the Attitude Era. But the interest I had was really the the behind-the-scenes part, because he had been the main man in terms of talent relations for a long time. So I went along to that, and I even met Jim and got to shake his hand, and he was actually a really inspiring guy, because I had actually just started a new job, but it was a temporary job, and I knew that I was about to start a full-time permanent job. And in chatting, that came up, and he gave me this inspirational chat about, you know... Just go for it, keep your head up, you know, make the most of the opportunity you've got. And to be honest with you, and I might it was sound the best a bit 50 quid you've ever spent. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Except that time in Amsterdam. 
But <laughs> what happened was, I just found it really inspiring. And, you know, the cynic in me, like maybe from that night a few hours later onwards, would think, you know what, I dare say he sat down with many a WWF wrestler and had a similar chat if they were, you know, mid-card or the curtain jerker or whatever it might be, the popcorn match, and just saying to them, oh, you keep your head up, kid, and, like, you know, there's great mm-hmm. potential, great opportunities. <laughs> None of this is guaranteed, of course. It's just all very much optimistic and positive words to try and G someone up, isn't it? But it worked on me that night. I came away from it thinking he was a really nice guy and he had a really good show as well. And actually, Carol, this is funny because in advance of that, as part of my ticket, it was not only meeting Jim Ross, but you got to have your picture with him and also you got to get something signed. And I was like, what the hell can I get Jim Ross to sign? Because the ticket involved getting a couple of items and I thought, well, I can take my WrestleMania program. That'd be quite nice. He's in the Hall of Fame. He can sign that page. But I've got this other opportunity. And rather than just ignore that opportunity, I ordered a WWE encyclopedia from Amazon. I thought you were going to say you took along your checkbook or something. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had. So here I am, I traipse in with these two books and Jim signs and all that. And have a great night. But then what happens is more people start promoting these shows. So the same promoter, he brings over Shawn Michaels. He brings over Bret Hart. And I'm in my element because... Although I'm not as much of a fan in terms of the current product, it brings back a lot of nostalgia and good memories for me. So I went along to these things and traipsing in with my encyclopedia and souvenir program from WrestleMania. <laughs> and then this guy promoted a convention in London. And it was on a weekend, so it was a Saturday and a Sunday. And I was actually on holiday coming back from, I think it was Mallorca on the Saturday afternoon. So what I did was I got tickets for this convention. I practically got tickets to meet everyone. You know, I got this sort of a VIP package that involved everything. But I even got more add-ons. I was just going for it. I was a supermark this weekend. Oh, I think I've seen some of your pictures from this, actually. Is this where you'd got the pictures with demolition and stuff? That's exactly it. That's exactly that weekend. And what happened was, get back from Mallorca, let's say the plane lands at about half two in Glasgow Airport on a Saturday afternoon, went off the plane, got my bags after passport control, got home with my bags, and then grabbed the bag that I'd prepared earlier before going on holiday for a fortnight, (laughs) obviously included my trusty encyclopedia and programme, and was straight out the door to go back to Glasgow Airport to fly down to London for this convention the next day. (laughs) And that night I stayed in a hotel that I stayed in for business, the Hilton at Tower Bridge. And I thought, well, that night I better go along and make sure I've got my bearings. I don't want to be late and all that or just get lost completely. So I went along and I walked along (laughs) over Tower Bridge. The Grange Hotel was the venue. I just can't remember the area, but it was essentially a 25-minute walk. And I found it. And the first thing I seen when I got there was Ron Simmons, a.k.a. Farouk, walking out of Witherspoons. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he was dressed the way that he was when he was last in the WWE. Oh, I thought you were going to say he was dressed like Farouk. <laughs> Sadly not. Maybe the previous night, that's what yeah. he'd worn. <laughs> but the funny thing was, I just stood and I looked over and I see not certainly this building, I can see it's a massive hotel. And just as I turned around, I had to turn back because I heard the infamous, damn, basically bumped into a fan who must have said it to him and he said it back. But the next day, went along really early, joined the queue to get in, and they opened the doors, and we had to walk in via the restaurant to get to the hall that the convention was in. 
And as we're all traipsing through the restaurant, there's a couple of memories I've got. One is all these poor sods that are away for a weekend trip, and all of a sudden they've got all these, like, you know, wrestling fans traipsing by them as they're trying to grab their breakfast or eat their <laughs> breakfast. And two, I remember Charles Wright, who's probably most famous to us as Papa Shango, but he was also oh, the godfather. Godfather, so, yeah. He stood with his plate, you know, throwing his scrambled eggs on, <laughs> and everyone was sort of gawping at him as they traipsed by. But we get in, and the convention starts, and how it worked was there were certain things that were on at a certain time, you know, for the bigger names, such as your Bret Hart's of the world and mm-hmm. Trish Stratus or whatnot. But then there was, I suppose you'd call it the mid-to-low-card guys who were sat around the big hall with a desk, and you just went up and got their autograph or picture at any time. Now, at first, when we've all went in together at the same time, that means that, you know, everything's kind of a busy. And I'm in the queue to meet, I think it was, um, funnily enough, it was that party that Papa Shango was part of, the Nation of Domination. So the three of them are sat together, and so I've joined the queue for them. And there's this guy in front of me, and he's talking to the person in front of him, just about all the autographs he's got. And I suddenly felt less of a geek for my encyclopedia and my program that I now <laughs> carry about with me at all times. But in amongst all the chat, at one point they bring me into the conversation and they said, oh, have you got many autographs? And I was like, oh, I've got Jim Ross. <laughs> you know? <laughs> By that point, I might have had Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart as well. But, you know, in principle, I had one to three autographs and they were just looking at me as if I was filth, you know. But what was amazing is just trying to be cheery and keep the conversation going, I suppose, rather than being nasty about it. I said, oh, well, you know, you guys seem to have a lot. What are your most interesting ones? And then this chap said, without a word of a lie, oh, well, my best one's probably The Rock. And I thought, that's quite a decent one. You know, The Rock's a movie star now. Well done getting him. How did you manage to get The Rock? Well, I just so happened to be in Bristol where The Rock was filming, and I had my encyclopedia and Sharpie with me, and he gave me his autograph. And I'm like, are you really saying to me that you walk about all the time with this encyclopedia? Or perhaps you're just making this up, is my gut instinct right now. Fast forward to about five minutes later, and he also said, oh, here's some more I've got. He's flicking through. And I noticed that he's got Dino Bravo's autograph. Now, just to be clear, this guy's got an encyclopedia like me that's been published in 2013 or whatever, and Dino Bravo died 20 years earlier. (laughs) You just couldn't make it up. But you just get that with wrestling fans sometimes. But I dare say, actually, that's unfair. I dare say there's football fans that are the same. I suppose you're always going to find different characters, whatever your pastime is. But I always seem to find them quite quickly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as you know from listening to various episodes of the podcast, I love to celebrate these real eccentric characters. And you do find them in all walks of life. But I do find especially around wrestling. They seem to gravitate towards wrestling for some reason. They do, and I mean, another one, it's not always the fans that are the problem. Quite recently, about two or three years ago, I bought tickets to go to an evening with The Undertaker, and I know you might not be the biggest WWF fan, Carl, but you'll appreciate he is one of the legends, isn't he? And so, bought tickets, looking forward to going, and then at some point in time, the promoter, it was a company called Inside the Ropes, and that might be familiar to you because they've essentially revived the old Power Slam magazine in recent right, times. Okay. But their bread and butter was initially doing these live shows, and they do amazing shows. But in this instance, The Undertaker bailed on them for whatever reason. 
I think it was probably because of contractual issues with the WWE. But in any case, they replace The Undertaker's spoken section with Mick Foley, but say you can still come and get your picture and autograph with The Undertaker. So it turned into quite an odd concept, really. You would get to meet The Undertaker. You would get to get something signed by The Undertaker. You get your picture with The Undertaker, but you don't get to sit and watch him talk on a stage about anything. <laughs> You'll just get the conversation that you have if you're lucky with The Undertaker. And I was, I was say, actually very lucky. <laughs> I was going to say, was he actually allowed to talk to people as he was signing for them? He was amazingly chatty and friendly, I found, because I thought that, you know, going in, he's probably going to be quite off or awkward. But I was surprised right away. And maybe I was lucky because I got there really early and I was maybe, say, the 10th person to meet him. And he was in good spirits at that point and, you know, making jokes and stuff as he took the pictures. But then as soon as the picture's actually taken, he puts on a really deadpan impression. <laughs> and you look at the picture and you think, oh, that's, uh, he was smiling and joking with me. A lot of people mentioned this, and I think someone said, well, really, do you want The Undertaker to have a big cheesy smile, or do you want him to look like The Undertaker character? And it's like, well, fair enough, <laughs> you put it like that. But he was actually a very nice guy, and he was very jokey as well and stuff, which surprised me. And then you got to, as part of the deal, meet Mick Foley and get something signed. Now, as you know, Carl, I've got my program and I've got my encyclopedia. <laughs> and I actually thought, you know what? One of the first wrestling books I ever bought was Have a Nice Day. And I still think it stands the test of time, probably, if I was to pick it up. It was a really well-written book. And at the time it was released, we didn't have loads of autobiographies of wrestlers. So I'll take that as well. It only cost an extra, I don't know, 20 quid or 30 quid to get these extra things signed. It's a nice memento and keepsake. It's kind of like Spinner talking about when he buys mugs from every theatre show he goes to. <laughs> and, that, you know, getting these things signed seemed to become mine for a while. But, you know, get to meet Mick Foley. And it was really nice, actually, because I suppose he knows I'm paying extra money to get the book signed. You know, so right away he's thinking, oh, well, someone's giving me extra money. And if you believe what you read on <laughs> the forums and stuff, Mick Foley loves a bit of cash. Mm -hmm. But what he done was really nice, in my view. So see the encyclopedia, his page was actually two pages. And it covered off all his WWF characters. Mm -hmm. And I just expected him to sign one of them or just even write Mick Foley. What he did is he got different colours of pen and he gave me an autograph for each of those characters, including mm -hmm. little sort of illustrations, which was a really nice touch. I thought, <laughs> I'm not going to lie and say I'm the biggest Mick Foley fan in the world. I'm probably more in the camp of thinking he's a glorified stuntman and a technical expert at wrestling. But, you know, what a nice thing to do because... Although I've given him some extra money, it didn't cover what he's doing just now. He's sat there doing little drawings and stuff and really nice autograph type things. And basically, he does all this. And I'm like, oh, thanks so much. Really appreciate that. Shook his hand. And at that point, one of the people that was working for the promotion walks up and says, you're taking too long. Grabs the book, slams it shut, and all the ink gets smudged. <laughs> <laughs> and the equivalent for me was I don't know if you've ever seen the episode of Only Fools and Horses where they're looking for a butterfly and they end mm -hmm. up high-fiving yeah. each other when they've got the butterfly in hand it was like that moment when this book closed it was like, no! <laughs> <laughs> Although, albeit, I felt worse for Mick he'd spent more time on it than I had so it's all good I was going to say, I, I thought the climax to that story was going to be he finishes doing all this intricate artwork in different colours and then grabs a pair of scissors and just writes, fuck you, with the scissors all over the, all I over don't know, the page. I don't know, me an invoice for 50 quid, you still owe me yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and you've blunted my scissors, you cunt. It's funny though, and someone that's universally loved by wrestlers, Tracy Smothers. Yes. And I probably one of the few people that had a bad <laughs> experience with Tracy Smothers. Uh-huh. And I'm happy to talk about it because I think it makes sense. It's valid my reason. I had been on a tour with a guy called John Heidenreich, who had been in the WWE, a big American bloke who was absolutely lovely. And he said to me one day when we're traveling, oh, if you ever get to work with Tracy Smothers, he's an excellent guy. He's so patient. He's so nice. He never judges you. He never takes the piss. And I said, well, funnily enough, John, I think I'm refing a show in a couple of months' time where Tracy's booked to appear, assuming all goes well that he does come over to the UK. And that was the first ICW show. Oh, so, yes. We'll cover that in detail later. <laughs> and ultimately, I'm really looking forward to meeting Tracy and, you know, pass on my regards from John, because although they live in the same country, America's a big place. There's no guarantee when they'll meet each other again. And John said, oh, please do pass on my kindest regards and respect to Tracy. I hope he's doing well. So I remember this because I was really friendly with John and I made a point of making sure I remembered and then on the day, you know, at the show, I seen Tracy, it was himself, and so I thought, I'll go and introduce myself, shake his hand and see who I am, and also mention that John passes on his regards. But unfortunately, I think he was having a bad time of it, you know, and I think he had ups and downs throughout his life with different issues. But ultimately, he spent the whole time we were talking trying to sell me fake Rey Mysterio masks and uh, <laughs> Ring of Honor DVDs, I think it was. Even though, and this sounds really wanky, but I remember at one point saying, oh yeah, so just a reminder, I'm the referee tonight, I'm kind of a worker, I'm not saying I'm worth anything, but you know, I'm not a fan, I'm here to let you know that your old friend John's asking for you. But again, he just went into sale mode, and it was a bit of a shame to see him like that, because I'd been really looking forward to meeting Tracy, I'd heard so much about him, uh-huh. but unfortunately that one time I met him, he wasn't a great guy, but clearly that was an off night because so many people have got fond memories of Tracy, especially in the UK. Well, to be fair, I mean, I, even though I had good experiences with him, I remember he was always very keen, you know, to shift them DVDs and stuff. And I can kind of understand where he's coming. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, that is a bit of a dick thing to try and work the boys. I'm not a fan of that at all. I can understand it, though, because in those southern territories, you know, where he would have wrestled a lot of his career, that was very much a thing. Go out and try and hawk as much stuff as you possibly can. And there's two schools of thought on that. You know, some people think it's fine. Some people think it's sort of cheap and, you know, it sort of cheapens the wrestlers. I'm actually in that camp pretty much. You know, it doesn't do your public image any good to be constantly out there sort of hawking everything you can and, like, practically begging people to buy things. But, I mean, like I say, I had good experiences with the guy. It didn't hurt my impression of him that he would sort of praise me to the hilt to anyone that would listen whenever we were around. So, like... That works. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it works for me. But, no, I get where you're coming from there. That's the funny thing. With wrestling and my time in wrestling and sort of my interactions with other wrestlers, other people at the shows... I always tried to gravitate towards the people that were quite comfortable actually just being human beings. Mm, absolutely. I totally agree with you. I mean, just to finish off the point about Tracy, he's absolutely not alone. I've not seen it firsthand, but I've heard insane tales about the indie darlings like AJ Styles and Samoa Joe absolutely rinsing people at these yeah. um, super shows down south back in the day. 
But you know what? With their business hat on, when they grab all that money and convert it at a travel ex or whatever it is, they're thinking that's my mortgage for the next two months or whatever it uh-huh. might be. So it is business. So I totally get that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I think I always gravitated towards people who are just normal or normal-ish <laughs> as well in wrestling. I mean, an example of someone who wasn't in my experience, um, jumping about a bit here, but I remember the first time I met a chap called Colt Cabana, who mm. was an American wrestler who I would call an indie darling, i.e. he's massive with the internet fans, but yeah. no one would know him if he walked into John Lewis, you know? So, or um, Or Witherspoons. <laughs> and I think that's actually probably the case. Even after his WWE run, people probably didn't recognise him, but the internet right. fans certainly loved him. I'd never met the guy before, I'd never seen his work before. What happened was, we're at a show in Blantyre in Scotland. We'll get on to covering this as well later on. (laughs) Yeah, but in terms of, you know, Colt Cabana, I'm just stood talking to someone, and I honestly, hand in heart, can't remember who it was. I just remember it was someone I knew from, you know, be it yourself or Andy or Drew. And out of nowhere, someone kind of appears and says, Hi, I'm Scott, how are you? And puts his hand out. And my instant reaction is, oh, what a nice guy. So I put my hand out, we shake hands, we're starting to shake hands, and I say, hi, I'm Toot. And I, I'm about to say, I'm Tony. And he's already turned around to whoever was beside me and say, hi, I'm Scott, how are you? Oh, yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, I know that wrestling has that wrestler handshake thing. Yes. They have the hugs in some cases, but try and pretend it's sincere to some degree. Yeah, I always hated that as well. I had my own experience of that in a dressing room. I was working for a guy called Chris Curtis, who had, you know, wrestled around the circuit for Max Crabtree and then sort of gone out on his own and started promoting his own shows when Max had finished. I was in a dressing room for him, and a guy called Paul Beswick, who was also known under the name Paul Volt, or Paul oh, I remember that name from the time, so was he a Hammerlock guy? Yeah, he started at Hammerlock and then went round, you know, whoever he went round. But I remember him coming in the dressing room on this particular show, and he comes round, he sort of does a circuit of everyone, goes like, higher, 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 and then leaves, you know, no, hi, I'm Paul, or nice to meet you and all of this, it's just higher, 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 and he leaves, and later on, he's back in the dressing room, I'm back in there as well, and the conversation that was going on, I think he was talking to Chris or someone, sort of finishes Chris goes away and then it's just me and him sort of left there in the room you know put my hand out and said you know nice to meet you I'm Carl by the way and he just went oh, oh yeah we, we we met earlier did we actually you know it's <laughs> <laughs> oh dear Look, it's funny I'm sure that every business and stuff has their little rituals you know football teams is an example I'd probably use I dare say they've got some kind of equivalent but to me it was just so false you know I would rather at some point just have a nod and a, oh, how's it going, mate, type thing than yeah. all that BS. I mean, you know, you said about some people hugging instead. I mean, I used to hug people, but that's just because I like to hug my mates, you know. Hey, mate, how you doing, sort of thing, you know. Oh, no, to be clear with you, Carl, I've got no problem with fire shaking people's hands or hugging them even, especially if they approve of both. But in terms of, you know, the hug thing, I was at one of these Inside the Ropes shows. I think it was for Sting. He was famous from WCW for most of his career, so a fairly big name at one point. And I recall there was a sort of a group of Scottish wrestlers kind of hanging about in a sort of a part at the side. They weren't taking a seat like all the punters, so to speak. They were making their presence known by standing at a certain point where they were quite visible. 
Right. And when they all walked up to each other, there was this really robotic hug that would happen. <laughs> and it just looked so surreal because it wasn't like the natural hug of, you know, say I saw you, we might do it. I don't uh-huh. know. It's just a natural instinct thing, you know what I mean? But it was certainly their version of that wrestler handshake. Again, no one dies from it, but it just can be a bit offish at times if it's insincere, in my view. Yeah, it's one of them things. And I bet I know which group of wrestlers it was. The same kind that would introduce a dress code when there doesn't need to be a dress code introduced in an attempt to act professional. Well, that's it. I mean, it probably is that type of folk that you're thinking of. I mean, I'm just laughing here thinking of dress codes because I remember talking to a couple of former WWE guys about that because they were in WWE when a dress code was introduced for them. And quite literally, any time of day, they had to be dressed in what I would call office clothes. So either a full suit or, as a worst case, proper shoes, trousers and a shirt. That included if they went to McDonald's drive through at 2 in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) But from a practical point of view, aside from the annoyance of getting caught out for not abiding by that rule, Imagine doing a wrestling show in Sterling and we all had to put suits and shirts and ties on afterwards to go in a car and share it with, you know, four other people with all the bags all over the place. Yeah. Or even worse, you know, go in a coach with a lot of strangers where the seats might be dirty or whatnot. You're all feeling hot and sweaty or whatever. You all got to wear suits. It's just silly, you know. And yeah. As the WWE guy said, if they want a uniform, get his, like, you know, track suits like the Olympians wear. Not a shell suit, but you know what I mean? The equivalent of something that an athlete would wear. But I think the problem in the UK is probably they pick up on things that WWE implement and they think we better do the yeah. same. That's just what we must do. You're overcomplicating something. It should be a simple process that's enjoyable yeah. for people. Yeah, some people as well, you never really sort of broke through and saw the real person, I found. You know, people are quite guarded in some aspects. They were worried about showing the real person, and that's why I always gravitate to the people that were more real, you know, that were, as we said before, quite happy to be normal human beings sort of thing and act like normal human beings. Absolutely. But again, it's life, isn't it? You get all sorts and you just have to deal with it. (laughs) And to be honest, if we didn't have them people around, we probably wouldn't have half the stories we do, so... (laughs) Well, absolutely, because if you think about... I recall Spinner telling me this story years ago when I was still involved about how you'd get on that minibus and day one, if it's a new crew you're working with, you'd have some stuff to talk about. But from day two through to day 30, there's absolutely nothing to say because no one's got any idea of what's going on in the real world. You've not got any time for that. You're either in the bus, wrestling, cleaning your stuff or sleeping or making your food. And then Uh you go on that bus again and you're just talking to the same people or rather... It probably gets to a point where there's not even any conversation at all. Whereas a bit of variety, I suppose, is always good. And there's always certainly someone around in British wrestling, in my experiences, that makes it an entertaining day one way or another. (laughs) Well, this was the thing, you know, in 2007, which is one of the years I ended up working full-time in wrestling, we had so many trips and so many shows, we had to come up with different ways to pass the time. Otherwise, it would be, you know, monotonous, like we were talking about just then. You know, this is where we started coming up with stupid games to play on the road and stuff like that, just to pass the time and just to create that little bit of entertainment for ourselves. But yeah, otherwise, you know, it can be very monotonous. I mean, I found the time I was working full time, I had some great experiences, but there were times when the enjoyment kind of went out of it. 
because it was that very full-time thing. You weren't just seeing the best of it, you were seeing the worst of it as well day to day. The things that would get to you, but you could just sort of put away in a drawer at the end of the weekend, they were with you the whole time when you were sort of living it 24 hours a day. So as much as it was good to work full-time, you got the best and the worst of it in that scenario. I think that's a fair comment, Carl. I think even working part-time, it can feel like that, or at least it did for me. Because being blunt, for most of the time, I was a weekend warrior. No, I was um, the same for a lot of the time. But you know what? Even if you think about those periods of time, we forget about the stuff that pissed us off at those times. Like right now, in, in all these podcasts, you remember the good things or the funny things or the really bad things. Yeah. But when you're actually living it, you're on like a bus to Aberdeen for three hours, squashed up against someone that you might not necessarily like, who's talking a lot of rubbish, and you're just saying, I wish this bus would hurry up. You might be missing your family member's birthday and thinking, oh, am I a bit of a dick for being here rather than that, that meal? You kind of forget those things in hindsight, but at the time, you're living it. And I only imagine when you're doing it full time, it really must take it out of you mentally. Yeah, I mean, it did get that way. But at the same time, you know, I've said lots of times, I mean, I'd never, you know, made any great shakes in wrestling. I'd never made it to any sort of significant level. But I'm really happy with the experiences that it gave me. You know, I had some great times and I wouldn't swap my experiences for anything else, you know, sort of making it to a higher level potentially, even though that would have given me lots of other different experiences. I love the experiences that my low-level career gave me, and I wouldn't swap that. Absolutely, and I think, you know, you undermine yourself there. But you know what? I suppose there was limitations as well insofar as your um, fear of flying, for example. (laughs) Well, that's polite saying that that was the only limitation, you know, for me making it to the next (laughs) level. But um, looking back, I mean, I don't know if you remember, at the time I used to write blogs and I put some of them up online and I used to keep records of things. And I found that really, really helpful when it came to doing this podcast, because for years now I've wanted to do something with all that information that I've collected together. But... I didn't quite know what. No, I think it's great, Carl, because, well, one is a fan of the podcast, they're very entertaining. You know, both the ones that I went into thinking I'm looking forward to hearing from someone I knew, such as Spinner, but also, you know, stuff like Dean's podcast, I was totally riveted just to hear another fan's perspective of how they got into it and then how they actually became involved. It's really good. In terms of the platform... I would say these podcasts are the new equivalent of an autobiography in a sense, aren't they? At this point in time, here's something that happened with my life. So uh-huh. I think it's amazing for you to kind of register it all in one place, but also get to talk to people from those times. Yeah, that's the thing as well, you know. I admit myself that these days I'm fairly antisocial. There's certain people I like talking to, and that's about it really. And I'm becoming increasingly selective in that audience. But this has been good for me, actually, because it does actually sort of make me talk to people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, at a time like now when we're talking, it's probably the best time ever to make sure you keep talking to people and listening to people because Uh it's so easy for people, I think, no matter what their natural instincts are to shut down right now. So, no, I think for all of us, there's always a degree of try and keep talking and, you know, make sure you don't drop off the radar altogether. Yeah. So, I mean... What are some of the most Bush League or rinky-dink things that you've ever sort of come across as a fan? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
probably a different perspective to other people you'll talk to in terms of when I was a fan before I got involved because I predominantly went to the American shows. And I've already mentioned to you one of the British shows I went to was the one at the Sandcastle in Blackpool yes. with the Keith Harris and Orville stuff. So <laughs> that wasn't Rinky Dinky at all. That was a premium show. That's an upgrade. What's funny, actually, thinking about it, it didn't at the time feel amateur hour, and I don't think it was. It was just how it happened. But see, when I've seen shows, you know, at the holiday camps, for example, you'd sit there and most of the time you'd see the guys putting the ring up, then dismantling it. Yeah. And that's quite an odd thing in itself, isn't it? You know, because I suppose before the show happens, you don't know who these people are. Most people wouldn't have known who they were. But certainly after the show, everyone knows who they are. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just how it was done. And no one batted an eyelid, you know, when you've got these four guys that have just had two singles matches and a tag, then all work together to dismantle the ring. You know, yeah. maybe that could have been done better, but not their fault. They've got to get the ring up and they've got to bring it down. Maybe the venue could have done it better by not having shows either side of theirs or closing the venue either side. That's one thing, I suppose. I mean, I've seen a couple, actually, on the American things. The first time I've seen the World Wrestling All-Stars in Glasgow, they had really good production values, good lighting, good pyro, all that stuff. But then the second time round, I think they were pretty much near skint. And although Glasgow was the pay-per-view, it was just everything just felt quite tatty and cheap. You know, so for example, they had these pipers come in, but I think it said Scottish Power on their drums and stuff. They hadn't even covered up the normal, <laughs> the normal stuff. Everything was just low rent. You know, the lighting was terrible and stuff. I remember going to TNA wrestling once, and there's a guy called Jeremy Borash. He was at TNA since it started. Before that, he'd been at WCW actually. He probably was one of the first people to have what I'd call a wrestling podcast or internet radio show doing that for WCW back 20 years ago, well, more than 20 years ago. He was helping out with the World Wrestling All-Stars and then TNA, and he was amazing at just being an all-rounder, it seemed. You know, as time went on, it became clear that he was not only acting as, you know, an announcer or a commentator or, you know, interviewer or the guy that designed the stuff for the website or acted as producer for the promos. He was just doing everything, you know, a proper team player guy. And he would always be the MC for the UK tours. And he was so enthusiastic. He really got the crowd going. And then once they came to Glasgow and there was some form of meeting with a potential TV channel, I'm sure it was, you know, maybe Bravo or Sky in general or ITV or Channel 5. Uh-huh. And Borash was one of the people apparently that had to go to this meeting. And that was a good idea because he'd have been able to put them in a good light, you know, with his enthusiasm and professionalism. But the downside to that is they didn't have a ring announcer for the Glasgow show. And rather than reach out to someone like John Short, as they should have done, obviously. <laughs> that would have been amazing. It would have been. I still wish that John had emceed a WWE show. It would have just cracked me up being there to listen to it. Well, he did MC one of them Sabu shows, as they came to be known. The Baldwin still show, yeah. Yeah, he did MC. I think it was the second one of those and, you know, just total fish out of water, basically. And he ended up introducing Mikey Whipwreckers, Mickey Whipwreck, and just whatever other gaffes that he made on the night. But now that would have been amazing. <laughs> you just remind me of someone else, actually. We digress as ever, Carl. Do you know <laughs> of a wrestler called Mikey Whiplash? Yes. I've never met the guy. As far as I know, if I have, I just can't remember. But I actually seen him on a show in Birmingham in 2005. 
and he was basically doing the job to Matt Morgan. And this is when Matt Morgan was starting to get a bit of a push. He had a stuttering gimmick. Um, that was the gimmick, you know, so I suppose you need all the help you can at that point if that's your push, <laughs> that you've got a stutter. The job that night was for Mikey Whitlash to do the job and for Matt to just destroy him with all his moves, ultimately. And I was there live in the stands for that at Birmingham. And, you know, it was just a filler match. You know, it was like the old style WWF jobber matches from 1992 yeah. and amongst the normal show. So about a year later, when I was doing the Italian tour, the push obviously worked because Matt was doing the Italian tour with me. Um, <laughs> so he got his jotters about, you know, three months after that push started. And he'd done an Italian tour before the one I did with him. But anyways, see on the one he did before, someone had been chatting to him about, you know, working with Whiplash and he couldn't remember. But I'm not too surprised because apparently how it all penned out was backstage at the NEC in Birmingham, Mikey Whiplash is, you know, trying to talk to him to find out what he wants him to do. And Matt said to him, do you know how to take a clothesline? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you've probably never met Matt but you know as I say that I'm picturing how he'd have looked in his face when he's saying that you know the eyes going a bit wide open and this poor guy Mikey Whiplash is sort of probably having to stand there and go yeah I think I've taken a clothesline before <laughs> but um, God knows the quality of the jobbers they get in America if that's the first question that you get asked can you take a clothesline <laughs> where were we again oh yeah so <laughs> TNA yeah so Borash is out of sight and they didn't hire John Short. What they did, though, is they just got like this guy that worked backstage as a sort of staffer, production guy, to do the MCing for this show in Glasgow. <laughs> and to give it some context, like, see if WWE tried that. And in fact, if you think about it, they did do that back in the day. You know, a lot of the people that became referees and MCs were actually just the ring crew. You know, so like you could go to a show in the 80s or 90s and the referee's just a guy that's on the ring crew that they've said, you're refereeing tonight. Or you're emceeing tonight. But at TNA, this guy, they didn't go and say, oh, let's hire him a tuxedo or a suit so he looks the part. He stood there in his denims and his white trainers and his jumper that he'd got for Christmas 20 years earlier. And he's trying to have a bit of patter, but it's not working. Or if he tried, it didn't work out too well. And he's the one that's supposed to be geeing up the crowd for the night and all that and making it all exciting. And... <laughs> But the thing that was weird about it was he didn't get any better as it went on. It was just so bad overall. You'd think someone would give him a tip or something or take over. I thought that was quite a poor show. But also for WWF, doing a show in Brayhead Arena in Glasgow, that's like a very small spot show. For TNA back then, that was actually a major thing for them, these UK tours, because they never drew as well in America anywhere they went. Whereas when they came to the UK, they were getting 10,000 in Wembley and 5,000 in Glasgow and 6,000 in Birmingham or what have you. So for them to do that, I just thought that was a bit piss poor. Maybe they regretted that because I don't think they came back to Glasgow the next year. (laughs) (laughs) There was a guy called Scott Conway who used to promote some shows. He was a wrestler as well and, you know, had worked as a second and whatever else, referee, MC. And at the time that I went to this one particular show, I don't know when it would have been, sometime in the 90s, he's one of the three referees on the night. And they all come in the ring, like two of them have got shirts and ties and whatever on, and there's him standing there. He's got a stripy top, but all it is is like it's a fucking Newcastle United shirt. <laughs> you know, with the logos on. and NTL like, on the front. Yeah. <laughs> I remember actually being asked 
I, on the day at a show for a guy called Dave Reese in Wales, mm-hmm. I remember being asked on the day to referee because the way he worked, you know, for some of them shows is you would have everybody turn up and you would just pick somebody to referee and everybody else would wrestle. And he asked me to do it. And I said, well, I can, but, you know, I haven't got any gear with me or anything, you know, because as a wrestler, you're not going to take a referee shirt and dress trousers or whatever, you know, and it, like, I didn't have anything to wear. There was a guy on the bill called Gary Ace, who was maybe 10 stone soaking wet. I ended up wearing one of his T-shirts turned inside out. You could still see the print of the T-shirt, but like, you know, you could see it on the other side. I could say he's about 10 stone soaking wet. I mean, I wasn't quite as big back then, but I was still a much bigger guy. I was probably about double his size. And it looks, you know, like I'm putting this T-shirt on and it looks like I'm a human sausage, basically, like being squeezed into a casing. It's like, it's just fucking ridiculous. Oh, God. That was the show, actually. The show was in a place called Aberystwyth, which is right on the west coast of Wales. And the road to get there, at one point, like goes right alongside an open mountainside. And you look down, it's this really, really thin road. And it's like, there's room enough for one car to go up or one car to come down, not both together at the same time. So you're always having to sort of pull into the side and let people down and they're having to pull into the side to let people up. And it's, you know, really precarious. And you look down over the side and it's just like hundreds of feet drop, basically, from this little like one car road, you know. And he was driving on that particular show, this Gary Ace, and he was a newly qualified driver. And I have never been so shit scared doing a wrestling trip in all my life. Because, I mean, like, he couldn't even do a three-point turn. And I'm in the car with this guy, like, and I'm just thinking, we're going to die. I'm actually going to die here. (laughs) And, oh, it's just another one of them stupid situations you find yourself in. But luckily on the way back, not only was it dark, so, you know, if anything had happened, you know, I was blissfully unaware. But... You know, I went in the ring van on the way back with an experienced driver. So, yeah, I managed to get out of that one. <laughs> just about. Yeah, just about. I mean, some of the things you see, it's not just the British shows you see crazy things. It's the American shows as well that can be insane. WWE had always went to the SECC in Glasgow. And then, for whatever reason, they decided to go to the Brayhead Arena for the first time in 2004. I actually have a slight recollection that at that point in time, I think Brayhead Arena was owned by the same people that owned the Manchester Arena. Right. So there might have been some kind of a background business deal where maybe they got a discount or something if they used both, who knows. Yeah. But in any case, they went to the Brayhead Arena, which I now live about a 10-minute walk from, funnily enough. And it's a very small arena. For the wrestling, it probably holds about 5,000. But predominantly it's used for things like ice hockey, and that holds maybe 3,500 for those shows. But in any case, they went to Brayhead Arena in 2004 for their WrestleMania Revenge Tour. And it was the last day of the tour. It was a Sunday afternoon, so it was probably the hangover show for the crew. They've been to, I think it was Sheffield, Newcastle, Aberdeen, then Glasgow. And what happened was they started the show with Tony Schimmel, the WWE MC, for a long time. I think he got released a few months ago. But he'd been with the company since the early 80s, his ring crew and then announcer. He starts the show by saying, good evening, Glasgow, welcome to WWE Smackdown. And the next thing, everyone ducked because there was a massive explosion. Or that's what seemed to happen. 
it turns out that the previous nights of the tour, they tried to film a video package with their pyro going off, and for one reason or another, something always went wrong, be it a technical issue with the video, technical issue with the microphone, or just the fireworks didn't look good. They get to the final show, it's their last chance to get their glory and get the tour highlight package looking good for TV the following week. So they've used too much of the explosive part, you know, the charges or whatever it is. And quite literally, everyone ducks when they hear this massive noise. Then you look up and you see the ring going up and down off the ground because (laughs) they've put put this stuff under the ring, which must, I don't know anything about pyro. But the referee, I'm sure it was Brian Hebner and Tony Schimmel, they're holding onto the ropes as the ring's jumping up and down. (laughs) And for the first match, it was a guy called Chuck Palumbo versus Orlando Jordan. It was the equivalent of Tatanka versus Kato in 2004. And these guys, I'm sure they might have had a good match, but it was hard to tell because from the fifth row, all you could see was a smoke from the pyro still (laughs) from the previous explosion. So, yeah, there's loads of crazy things that happen at these shows. I mean, one that happened the year before was I'd went to Aberdeen to see a house show and the main event was Brock Lesnar versus Big Show. And these are two massive guys. So they do their match, and it ends with Brock Lesnar doing his finishing move called the F5 on Big Show. One, two, three, match is over. Mike Yoda, the referee, calls for the bell to be rung. Everyone's happy, cheering and all that stuff. The next thing, out of nowhere, someone's in the ring that shouldn't be there. And it's like, bloody hell, that's not a run-in, that's a fan. And (laughs) at this point in time, Brock Lesnar and Big Show are still down on the canvas. And this guy just starts jumping up and down on the ring and holding on to the ropes and stuff. I should clarify, actually, he's on the outside still, so he's kind of doing the Ultimate Warrior thing. You know, he's stood on the outside, jumping up and down, holding on to the rope. And Mike Yoda just walks over and bitch slaps the bitch, you know. <laughs> and uh, this guy goes flying into the hands of one of the WWE security guards, quite literally. And he's carried away like you would carry an 18-month-old baby around the room. (laughs) (laughs) And then the WWE security guy throws him over the guardrail to the arena staff and tells him to take care of it. I mean, some of the things you see, it's crazy. So that was part one of my interview with Tony Nadette. Next time, we'll talk about Tony's first steps into the world of wrestling with BCW in Scotland as well as his experiences of going on to work for many of the different promoters in Scotland. Tony has some fantastic stories to tell, and we also delve into many of our shared experiences during that time, so you really won't want to miss part two, coming up in episode 19. Before that though, it's now time for the next of our regular features. Quote of the Week I say Yes, it's Quote of the Week, and this week's Quote of the Week is... Paul in the Hall! This story is from 2008, and takes place at a W3L show in Dalgetty Bay. I mentioned in a previous episode about a couple of instances where something has made me, or others, openly laugh during a match. For the most part, It's usually been things that can be covered easily, and in many cases the people watching probably don't even notice that whatever it is has happened. 
On this occasion, though, it was somewhat less easy to hide what was going on from the paying public. As was par for the course with the W3L show, because a lot of them took place in sports centres, during the day, after setting up the frame of the ring, a number of us, including on this occasion the evergreen Johnny Kidd, then took part in a nice, leisurely game of football, which also included us trying to lob the ball over the ring, and over people putting the ropes on, with mixed results, it has to be said. Mind you, I only took one full-on shot in the ghoulies with the ball on this particular day, which was quite possibly a record for our games. The games of football we played before the shows were unusual, inasmuch as they weren't usually decided by the number of goals scored by a particular person or team, but rather by who was still able to continue by the end, to produce children, as the number of times everyone, completely inadvertently, took a ball to the knackers full pelt, frankly verged on the ridiculous at times. It does bring up an interesting topic of conversation though. Much as wrestling matches often have different rules and themes, depending on the context, build-up and rivalry, perhaps the various football leagues around the world could also possibly look at different styles of match to keep the level of interest up. I mean, who wouldn't want to see a special stipulation game where people lined up to kick footballs at Cristiano Ronaldo's bollocks, for example? Or maybe Rochdale versus Sheffield Wednesday versus AFC Wimbledon in a three-way barbed wire exploding ball match. All of which, of course, taking place on a six-sided pitch with a 15-foot-high steel cage surrounding. Although possibly not if the match was taking place at Sheffield Wednesday's ground. There are already plenty of heel referees in football, so some of these concepts probably aren't too much of a stretch. A Millwall versus Leeds United fans bring the weapons match might be a step slightly too far though. Having said that, when I first went to St Andrews Stadium in Birmingham years ago to watch my beloved Nottingham Forest romp to promotion, as I went into the ground there was a big sign listing all of the things supporters weren't allowed to take into the ground, such as glass bottles, radios and various other things. It didn't say anything about knives, guns, hand grenades, or frying pans, though. So maybe this sort of thing has actually been going on for years. After our footballing fun, and replacing everyone on the crew who were now off at the QE hospital in Dunfermline, getting their crown jewels extracted back out of their bodies, there was a the small matter of that evening's wrestling show. This was one of the occasions where W3L promoter Mike Musso and me had combined together to bring up a carload of people from England for a run of shows from both of our respective promotions, sharing costs and working together to organise our dates to coincide, thereby giving the people coming up a longer run and making it more worth their while. The visiting Sassanacs on this occasion were the Rock and Roll Express Blondie Barrett, the aforementioned Johnny Kidd, and, of course, the legendary John Short. The format for this particular show was an interesting one, as, in addition to there being various other matches, there were four qualifiers where the winners would all go through to a finale later in the night, which would be a flag match. But more about that later. 
I was on first on the night, my qualifying match being against Colin Mackay, the Highlander. As I've mentioned before, during my conversation with Mike on this podcast, this match was notable for being my best ever match with Colin, mostly because it was four minutes long and had approximately 45 seconds of in-ring wrestling, the rest being crowd work. They were a good, lively crowd on that night in Dalgetty Bay, although the sight of Colin sitting at ringside, with a sign he'd got from someone in the front row, getting the crowd to chant, You are gay, at me repeatedly, was an interesting moment, shall we say, for all the wrong reasons. Following the aforementioned 45 match-of-the-year-worthy seconds of wrestling, I went over on Colin and claimed my place in the final. And in the matches that followed, Blondie Barrett, Red Lightning and Liam Thompson also claimed spots in the finale. After one of the matches, and I can't quite remember whether it was Andy or Liam's, but it would have been whichever match was last out of the qualifiers, we all went out to the ring to do an angle to set up the final. As I mentioned before, this was going to be a flag match, where both Scottish and English flags were up on poles, and the winner of the match would have to firstly grab their country's flag from where it was located, and then secondly insert it into a particular designated ring post, where it would proudly be displayed for all to see. After a certain amount of setup and jostling back and forth on the microphone, Andy and Liam both attempted to reiterate that they would be the one to win the match. But as each of them said the line, I'm going to be the one to put my pole in that hole, they both openly dissolved into fits of laughter. A few more attempts followed, as the two of them tried to say, I'm going to put my pole in that hole, and keep a straight face afterwards. But they both absolutely creased again, to the point where they just couldn't regain their composure and had to pretty much come to a dead halt there and then. Uh, if only we'd had a holiday camp show at Weems Bay that weekend. They'd have probably both been able to put their poles in the hole, which might have ended up saving this absolute debacle. The match itself ended up being much better than it really had any right to be. Although this was, strictly speaking, every man for himself, most of the match was worked in a team format, with the English team of myself and Blondie, against the Scottish team of Liam and Andy. As the match went on, of course, Blondie and me would end up bickering, and that would, in turn, lead to Andy and Liam winning the day for Scotland to send them home happy. Unfortunately, towards the end of the match, as I was up on the ring apron, attempting to get my pole into the hole, in front of my wife too, I should add, I was knocked off the apron by Andy, and ended up taking a massive Cactus Jack-style splat straight onto my hip on the floor, after I tried to grab the rope to slow me down, but basically just missed it completely. I felt that one for a good few weeks afterwards. Further merriment was also to be had in the showers afterwards. This particular sports centre had a large shower room, with a number of showers all along the walls. I think the drains must have been a bit blocked up, as with a number of us all in there at once using the showers, the water wasn't running away all that readily and was starting to build up and get quite high. So Andy, being Andy, took full advantage of the situation and started running and jumping into the water and then sliding across it like he was surfing. He did this a few times, 
and then went to do it again. But just as he was about to jump, I threw a bottle of shampoo in the way, which made him kind of pull out halfway. But with the slippery floor, he was already on his way, and ended up going crashing into the wall, and falling in a massive heap, with his arms and legs everywhere, pretty much looking like he was doing an accidental Johnny Saint ball. It was a really funny visual at the time, although it's probably one of them things where you really have to be there to fully appreciate it. So that was Quote of the Week, for this week. And as we approach the end of another show, it's now time for our final feature. Song of the Week Yes, it's Song of the Week. As we've referenced several times in this episode, wrestling can be a unique kind of addiction, which pulls you in and just won't let go of you. Whether it be me still carrying on in wrestling, after the absolutely crazy goings-on in November 2007, or, as my guest Tony Nadette mentioned, the Stockholm Syndrome that keeps him going back to shows, even though he has very little interest in the current product. It's very much like a famous song, which contains the line, You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. So, it just seems appropriate to make... This episode's Song of the Week, Hotel California by the Eagles. And here it is.
Well, that's just about it again for this time. Thank you all very, very much for listening. And thank you to my fantastic guest, Tony Nadette. And there's much, much more to come from him next time. We will also have all of our regular features, so do keep a lookout on our social media pages for details of when episode 19 will be available. Until then though, if you enjoy this show, please do continue to like, share and retweet our posts on social media, as well as mentioning and recommending us to others, so we can continue to grow and bring you more great content for a long, long time to come. So, until next time, this is Carl Stewart, signing off, and saying goodbye, and thank you.